Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. This is the podcast that has the uh, interests of the Inklings, but the attention span of a TV recapper for New York Magazine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If you've just found us, this is a great podcast to start with because this is just going to be us talking about basically our year in reading and maybe how things have changed for us as readers, which may sound boring, but honestly... Other podcasts, we talk about, you know, a very big book for a very long time, and this one will probably be a smorgasbord of bad and maybe even hot takes. Um, so yeah, so I just wanted to, to start, I guess, Bill, um, you and I have been doing this podcast for a year, and I don't know, I, I thought it'd be fun to talk about um, how have your reading habits, like, changed, or like, I don't know, like, what do you want to, I mean, is that, a, <laughs> is that make a, does that make sense as a question, or just, you know. Um, what's this year been like trying to read for something and maybe just read more in general? It does make sense. This has been a particularly weird year for me in reading and in general. I've had kind of a lot of big life changes and such. Uh, and, uh, so I've had a lot of time to read. And, uh, so I, I think a lot of things have changed my reading habits lately other than just this podcast. But I will say, um, I've, I've been paying a lot more attention to like individual sentences and such. Like I took notes throughout all of these all the six books we read this year in a way I don't usually. And I found that moving over into my other reading where I'm, I'm, I'm a lot more willing to really drill down onto an individual paragraph, even on just something I'm reading for fun, you know, and which isn't, I'm not specifically reading to be a better writer or whatever. I, I it's definitely sharpened my sort of granular attention to things, which I think is good. and makes me a better reader and a better writer. At the very least, I have a lot more quippy aphorisms I can throw around now. That's good. Yeah, no, there's there's nothing like when you have to talk about something, you know, I always say, lots of things like, you know, teaching something is how you learn something best. But there has been a way in which that, you know, uh, doing the podcast has definitely made me, I feel like, more particular with my note taking. But I, I guess before we get too much into it, because um, <laughs> I never know how to start these things. But I think this is a really fun podcast because, like, in general, you and I are doing this mostly just because, like, we like to talk a lot about books, right? And we don't have, I mean, for you, I don't know about you, but, like, I don't have anyone else who I talk with about the things that I read, especially partly because I read stuff people don't read around me, you know? Like, I have a lot of smart friends who read other kinds of books, but, like, no one's reading the kind of books that you and I read this year for the podcast or in general. And so, and you know, we're very, like, pro-literacy podcast, but we're also, I think, like, a pro-literature podcast or whatever you want to call it. Um... And so what I think is fun about stuff like this is I feel like there's a lot of hate out there for like year and reading lists, you know, like so the millions does this great year and reading where they have a bunch of different authors and editors kind of talk about how they read stuff throughout the year. And some of the pieces are very short. Some are very long. Um, I recommend a few of them like Lydia Kiesling. I think that's how you say her name. She, hers is great this year. But so people I feel like often crap on year of lists because they come too early, which first of all, we're not doing, we're killing it on that front. <laughs> um, and second of all, just because it's, it's almost like, Hey, I hate, I, it's almost like how people hate encyclopedias. Like there's something that is authoritative about them that people hate, which I get, but I actually think it's really useful as a way to like, kind of just think about my own year and maybe the books that I didn't get to that I want to get to next time. Um, so I, I don't know. So for this podcast, I have a lot of like random questions set up. I think you did too. I think you and I, we exchanged, 
reading lists. Um, maybe you want to talk about like, is this the first year you've recorded all of the books that you read? Um, or have you done it before? This is the first year I've done it, partly because it's the first year in a long time where I've read more than I've read enough books to make it worth doing. You know, I, I usually read a fair amount, but this year I read a lot more than I have in the last several years, just because I haven't been in law school, for one thing. That helps. Um, so I guess I should say I read a lot, but this is the, where I've been reading, like, for pleasure, right? Um, rather than, you know, reading case law textbooks. You know what I noticed looking at your list? You read so many big books. I mean, this is like the big book podcast or whatever, right? Like, we read big books for the podcast. But you read uh, Chernow's um, biography of whoever, uh, Grant, of Grant, right? Yeah. Like that's that book is huge, right? It's pretty long. It's it's uh it's about nine hundred and fifty pages of actual text, and then you know a good hundred and fifty of footnotes and stuff. So it's it's not as big as uh like Black Lamb and Gray Falcon was, but it's a it's a it's a tome. It is a brick. Uh, it's also dynamite. It's a really good book. So. I was gonna ask you. So so that's yeah. So okay. So what did do do you feel like you are now a pro Grant person? Yeah, I went into the book knowing not really a great deal about Grant at all. I knew, you know, a little bit about his time as a general, and I knew he'd had kind of a rough time as president, but that there was some controversy about how much of that was his fault and so on, and how much some of the narratives around him might have been shaped by the sort of post-Civil War rehabilitation of the Confederacy project that a lot of people were doing. Also, my dogs uh, really hate the Civil War. They're very upset about it. I'm just going to keep going. Yeah, let's um, do it. But... Uh, I, 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 you know, went into the book not knowing a lot about Grant and came out as pretty much an unabashed Grant stan. He's a, he's a fascinating guy, not the best president by any means. That was Azzy's opinion. Azzy, uh, Azzy really doesn't think there's been, ever been a good president of the United States. Uh, and so the fact that I'm speaking well of one is bad. But no, I, I came out of it as a real Grant stan, uh, he, partly because, you know, like I said, I've been having a weird year. And this is a guy who dealt with a lot of very serious depression and very serious sort of struggles with who he wanted to be and like with alcoholism and stuff and ended up, you know, being one of the single most important generals in history, writing what just about everybody argues is the best, like the best military memoir in the English language while he was dying of throat cancer and tried really hard to fight for, you know, people who needed help both in the war and in his presidency. And so it was, uh, you know, I really, I, I fell in love with him as a person, even if I'm not sure you can argue he's the best president of all time. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no. I just, yeah. Well, that, I think that's the that's that's sort of the the funnest part about I am um, a podcast as formless as ours, especially for for this kind of podcast where we just talk about what we read. Because I read this great I read this great essay by um I think it's Joseph Epstein, who's sort of um he's kind of a, a, a just a bookish essayist who uh, had a great um a couple of essays on on charm actually and charming people that he turned into a book recently but um he wrote in an essay this year that like people read to become wise and it's funny because like i'm always really skeptical of too of, of too highfalutin a theory of reading right so like like i i come from like i feel like in the mfa world that i kind of come from people are really into reading as empathy right that you get and, I, and it makes sense right because reading is the, still the best art form for getting inside someone else's mind you know so like there is a certain way in which what you're doing is you know empathic in a certain just like in structural sense do you know what i mean um but i'm really skeptical of the idea that that like reading automatically makes me more empathic in like a positive sense do you know what i mean and so in the same way i'm also somewhat skeptical of reading to become wise, except I, I will say, I feel like the more serious I've gotten about reading, which sounds stupid because actually it's become more fun. It's become a more fun thing 
that has fed into me being more serious about setting time aside for it, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. And actually, I, I really liked that someone was old school enough to just say, hey, um, read to become wise, not to learn facts, but to kind of learn your own way of going through facts, which is still a little wishy-washy for me. But um, I don't know. So I feel like it's interesting because like books like Grant's, like which you read, or the book that we just finished for our last podcast, Black Lamb and Gray Falcon, which is, you know, a history book of sorts as well. I, I wanted all the facts of that book inside of me. But what I feel like I got most out of that book was a certain sense of discretion that I didn't have before it. Does that make? Is that? Do you think that is that a coherent theory, or is that just sort of maybe maybe another you know hot pie in the sky reason to read? I mean, I think we're both really interested in like virtue ethics and stuff, right? Like as as yeah. philosophies, and so I think you and I are both invested in a theory of doing things which makes you better people, you know, a better person in addition to whatever else you learn. So I, I, I definitely think one can overstate some of the pie in the sky, as you called it, theories where, you know, books are a gateway into the imagination that makes you a better person. And a part of me is like, I don't think it's wrong. I just think it can be overstated. And I think there is a sense in which if all you do is sit in your room and read all day, that doesn't, you're not putting anything back out into the world. But at the same yeah. time, like, if I read a really important book, I come away subtly changed, and hopefully for the better. Not, I mean, I think books can make you worse, too. Like, it, it would be hard to say that, you know, art has power and it's only necessarily good. <laughs> right. But, uh, I, you know, I read Grant, and I felt like I got a better picture of somebody who is really pretty much trying his best the entire time across tremendous external and internal obstacles and that made me feel like I had a better idea how to deal with some of my own garbage brain stuff. I don't, you know, we'll see if it worked, I guess, right? But I at least felt like I had a better idea. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess also what people really underestimate, um, which this goes in line with my idea that, like, reading for pleasure is why you should read. But um, also there's pretty much the, the idea that, like, if, there, if there's not a lasting effect, it's therefore not useful. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that's actually, like, I don't... Uh, I don't think that's makes sense at all in some ways. Cause like what good thing in your life has sort of this permanent change, except for maybe if you're religious or maybe the big moment of, you know, like having a kid or something, there are definitely permanent moments that happen outside of you that affect you, obviously. And yet like most of the things that I do and value doing, they don't have these like long term mental shifts properties. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not, I don't watch, you know, I didn't watch Breaking Bad and suddenly reconsider, you know, my, my, my thoughts about the, the, the war on drugs in a way that helped me vote differently. Do you know what I mean? Like there's not these lasting effects we expect of anything else. It just feels like reading now is in competition with so much other media that people feel like, I think they, they have to figure out a way to like elevate it to a place that it can be defended. Whereas Honestly, like I read a great book, and I agree with you. I think I am changed by books um, that have been important in my life. And yet, even if it was just an illumination for the duration of the reading, that seems like it would be sufficient to keep reading, <laughs> right? Like, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. That's just a thought that I had now that like the the permanency of the change shouldn't necessarily dictate whether it's worthwhile. No, I think that makes sense. I think there's a sense in which we have a tendency to assume everything we do has to be building towards some sort of teleology, some sort of, you know, like you're going to you're going to finally level up your reading skills to enough level that you can take a prestige class level or something. You know, like there's a and I think that reading can be 
useful in a lot of ways and making you a better person. But I also think you're right. I also read some of these books this year because they would be fun. Like I just read a book about pirates that was just a fun book about pirates. I'm never going to think about it again. I enjoyed it when I read it, and I think that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, so I mean, you, you mentioned, like, you know, the ways in which maybe reading more attentively has helped you as a writer. I'm still trying to write as well, and I, 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 I have had to come to the conclusion that, like, a lot of my favorite writers, I'm not sure they were writing to be entertainers. Like, Joy Williams, who's still living, and she's, you know, pretty old now, but she's considered one of the best short story writers we have in America, definitely who's still alive. And she's one of my favorites. And I know somewhere she sort of disdains the idea of entertainment, you know, as cheap. And there's a part of me, part of me that, that agrees. It's like, oh, yes, like, let's let's get away from this, like, you know, uh, clown show of just painting our faces for the sake of others' pleasure. And yet also, like, as someone who reads a lot, I hope that my writing is entertaining because I just, I, I, especially for, like, fiction writing, every book that I've loved the most hasn't been just one slog like even moby dick like moby dick is funny do you know what i mean like moby dick has really good moments where um it's like a low humor moment or, or a, even a high humor moment it goes from poetry to tragedy to you know jokes about sailors in the same bed or whatever um and so i don't know i i do think uh i do think that the entertainment has become like no one tries to put that forward as an idea for reading because we have movies and TV that do entertainment so easily. But um, honestly, like, yeah, I think I read more this year than ever because I, I like you, I got out of school and I got to actually kind of get back into some of these pleasure reads. Like I like, so like, let's actually get into the, our year in reading um, because I'll tell you what I read this year that I've read a long time. I, I read some more fantasy and sci-fi for once, and it was really nice to kind of get back to my childhood genres. I didn't read a ton, you know, but like I, I read Ted Chiang, I think it was this year or last year. Gosh, I don't know actually at this point, but, um, I read Ted Chiang. I read, uh, I, I read like a Merlin saga, the first two books of a Merlin saga. And I haven't read Merlin stuff since I was maybe in high school, you know? Um, so I guess what what book did you read this year that like you were you were totally surprised um, that you picked it out or that you were surprised by it after you picked it out maybe? So th- there were a couple books that surprised me. I, I read a lot of I, I have a bad tendency to buy a book because I've heard it's something important and then read it, uh, and you know that may or may not mean I actually like it. But I guess I had two that came to mind. One is so actually the Haunting of Hill House, which I I bought before we decided to do our podcast on it and before there was going to be a TV show about it. Just right. out of a sense of obligation, because like I knew it was a foundationally <laughs> important text, and because I, I like horror stuff, and I expected it to be a horror novel that I was going to read and kind of, you know, recognize as important and move on, and instead fell madly in love uh, with that book and Shirley Jackson in general. Um, so that would be one thing where I was sort of not expecting to like it as much as I did. And the other... Uh, it's actually, at your recommendation, I actually picked up, uh, after Philip Roth died, I picked up The Ghost Writer. Um, mm. and was also expecting to kind of read this book so that I could say I had read some Philip Roth because what I sort of heard about him didn't appeal to me. Not just, I mean, people of course went into a big spin after he died about the way his work is very misogynistic and therefore very problematic. And I, I, I have only read this one book, so I can't speak to that. Right. But like, I didn't just get turned off of sort of the sort of consensus that his writing was in some way problematic. I just, everything I'd read of him, I was like, I don't understand why that this doesn't appeal to me at all. But then it, The Ghost Rider, I actually think, is a really phenomenal little book. Uh, it's incredibly daring. I can't believe he writes a book which has a long, extended, basically fan fiction series uh, section about <laughs> what if Anne Frank was alive and basically my 
t- my, my my literary idols like hot TA was Anne Frank. Like it's really hard to believe that he did that, <laughs> but I think it works pretty well. And I think in a sort of context of both the writer and Philip Roth trying to figure out what their identity needs to be as a as as a Jewish man living in you know post World War II America, I think it actually works really well. But boy, howdy, is that a choice? <laughs> I know. Well, and I it, it that book, yeah, I I really. I really loved that book too, actually. And I, a little like you, I mean, I actually think I was influenced by some of the, the problematic aura around Philip Roth. Um, and yet I, I thought that book totally surprised me partly because like, yeah, I, and like, like you, I've not read almost anything else by him besides the ghostwriter. So I, I don't, I do not want to minimize, you know, the theories that maybe properly identify his misogyny. Um, in this one book, it seemed to me that he was really, I mean, he is a person, this is what's always hard with fiction, because I do think there's a way in which really good writers elevate their own worst instincts, you know, because Philip Roth knows that straight up misogyny is boring. At the very least, like narratively, it's boring, right? There's nothing, if your main character is misogynist, it's not good if it's not investigated, complicated, or somehow you can't, you have to do something with it, right? So like, I had a teacher who always said, she could never write a book about Nazis because if you do, you she'd have to complicate the Nazis. She didn't want to do that. She didn't want to deal with that in her own fiction, you know, because she if she wrote it from a Nazi's perspective, she can't just make him a you know kind of a one thought evil machine. She's gonna to have to somehow complicate, and that's the whole sort of virtue of literature, um, is to hold various things in your in both hands at once. And so all I have to say is like for the ghostwriter at least, it feels to me like he was obviously investigating misogyny. Which is not to, you know, clear him of charges across his career or whatever, or as a person. But I also was surprised because no one really talks anymore. I feel like um, it's almost like this is <laughs> entering controversial territory, maybe, and also because of our knowledge base. But like Saul Bellow and Philip Roth and a few other big writers from the middle of the 20th century and, and beyond, I mean, they were all Jewish, right? They were these Jewish, um, um, mostly American authors who sort of were explicitly interested in um, the identity of being Jewish, which to me actually feels almost like a grandfather to today's sort of identity politics concerns. And not, you know, not in any bad or good way, but just like that we have an ongoing interest in how identity informs people's perspectives of themselves and others, right? And so I feel like in a lot of ways, like, you know, along with the Harlem Renaissance, um, we have the you know the 50s and 60s big Jewish writers who are doing this really interesting identity work, and I actually it was funny because in all the stuff I read about Philip Roth, no one talked about that. You know, not not upfront at least, unless unless they were like over the age of 60, that wasn't part of their review of of his contribution to literature. Do you know what I mean? Is that, I, I I just found that really weird that maybe we've we've overlooked some of that that really touchy history where anti-Semitism is still bad, but it used to be a much more like you know, just basic facet of society. <laughs> I don't know. The ghostwriter is so interesting because it's about this young writer trying to figure out, like he, he writes a story that he thinks is really good, which paints, you know, some of it, it's, it's based on a true story, you know, within the context of the novel, based on a true story about uh, his family who had kind of behaved kind of badly in this sort of family scandal. And he writes this story up and his, one of the central conflicts in the book is his dad saying look this is a well-written story but you can't post that you can't write this because right. everybody who's going to read this who's not jewish is going to think this 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 story about these few sort of jews behaving badly is about all jews everywhere and he's like well but i, I want to write it because it's a true story like it did actually happen like this and it's a big part of my life and that kind of tension i think is very 
still very important today, right? Like you, you, you get this with uh, minority writers wanting to write about real life, which of course being real life necessarily has some people in it who behave better than others and right, who are problematic or who might conform with stereotypes in some ways, even as they defy them in others and feeling this very weird tension about how to write about it without maybe making things worse. I don't know. I, th I think it's a very interesting book to read in 2018 because even as some of the specific uh, concerns maybe aren't as relevant, or at least I I'm not as familiar with maybe, it's still dealing with these these big deal questions that I think writers are dealing with all the time now. Also, just really well-written. Like, it's a very good Well, book. yeah, no, it, it definitely is super well-written. And I agree that also the tension of, or I should say maybe the burden of some identities will always have a burden of representation, right? That there's no getting around, like, if... Um, you know, there's a couple of books this year um, that were released. There was like there was like two or three short stories released by African American writers, short story collections. Sorry, and um, it was interesting because they were just really good fiction that are always going to kind of carry in the review this aside about how it does or doesn't maybe represent African American voices at this moment, right? Which of course is is hard because. On one hand, there's a lot of good in representing, you know, maybe a minority um, in a way that helps the minority, you know, maybe break through certain glass ceilings or whatever, right? But there's also the problem of, like, no artist wants to be reduced to one facet of who they are, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think Roth addresses that straight on in a really interesting way. And actually, you know, in a way that I, as, you know, just like a normal white American, you know, I have talked about that, like... Um, I'm someone who is sort of an, you know, not anachronistic, but maybe archaic and that like, I'm actually just like a normal Christian who loves really, you know, good books or whatever. And, um, what I found is that most of the current writers out there who are also Christian, like, um, Jamie Quattro had a really big book this year, Fire Sermon, and it was beloved, you know, and she, she, in the book, she's talking about faith explicitly. And on her book tour and a few interviews, people would ask her if she was a Christian and she just couldn't answer the question. She just wouldn't answer it straight ever, um, which actually even Madeline Lingle did one time when the, she was asked if she was a Christian writer. She's like, oh, you can't call me that. I'm a Christian who writes or whatever. And it was interesting to me because like the sensitivity they had to the question to me actually seemed a little ridiculous, like just say yes and move on. But also because there's just some identities that also won't be taken seriously. And, you know, the Christian tag is not one of them necessarily, but like you know, being a woman writer for years meant that you didn't write serious literature. Do you know what I mean? So like, I do feel like, uh, and, I, and I also feel like, you know, like you're talking about with Philip Roth, there are all these caricatures which he's constantly playing with that are now maybe not as present in the mainstream. Um, but one of them is is Jewish humor, you know? And so it was really interesting to, that he used a book to go so far beyond absurdity <laughs> that he made a book about, like you said, like, Anne Frank as a hot TA. <laughs> like, that's such an absurd thing, and he takes it so far beyond caricature that it almost wraps back into, like, this really weird place of sincerity. Um, sorry, that was kind of a long Philip Roth section that I didn't expect to happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I really so, like that book, too. Yeah, go ahead. So, so what are some other, what are some books you, you, uh, read this year that you uh, fell in love with and maybe weren't expecting to okay so i the the this is almost like embarrassing for me um and you know i've already said embarrassing stuff in this podcast like this one specifically but in general so i i i don't know and maybe i'll embarrass you as well have you have you heard of muriel spark do you know muriel spark the writer um because you know she's she's dead now and stuff and i didn't i knew nothing about her before this last maybe 
year or two. Um, and I say that because like, I, I read somewhere that, you know, Prime Miss Jean Brody, which is on like Modern Library's Best 100 Fiction Book. So she's not like an unknown quantity. You know, she's quite popular, famous, big deal. I just didn't know anything about her. And so some, I heard more than one place I heard people recommend the Prime Miss Jean Brody. And I was like, okay, I could use a good read. And so I was on a train from Syracuse to New York City at the end of my um, uh, MFA program. And I read Prime Miss Jean Brody basically in one sitting. I read it straight through, and I could not read it fast enough. And I liked it so much, I actually listened to the audiobook like a week later, <laughs> which I never do. I mean, I, I reread books a lot, but not usually within like one week of each other. And so it's weird to say like, hey, this classic that everyone talks about totally surprised me for how good it was. But honestly, like I, I didn't know who she was, and I've now read four or five books for her from by her this year. And um, it's been totally like, and I just talked about literature not being life-changing, but it actually feels, as a, as a writer at least, it feels a little life-changing because she's doing stuff that I think I've been trying to do, and I didn't really know that anyone else was doing it or had already done it perfectly. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And so, there was, so she's one of those writers where, like, um, I've always heard this, and I, I recommend this, that you should find writers who give you permission, right? You should find – if you're a writer, you should find writers who give you permission to do things that you feel maybe come from an essential part of who you are – that you don't really know if it'll work or not. And so she's someone who does like black humor and these weird spiritual things where like, like maybe literally death is calling you to tell you to remember you have to die. Like it's not a prank call. It's death prank calling you, which is crazy. Right. Um, but she gets away with it in what is basically a comedy of manners. And so she marries these various genres in a way that I just found totally astounding. Um, I did not expect. I did not expect to like her this much or for her to immediately become one of my like all-time favorite authors. Even though, of course, again, she's sort of a big deal. She's sort of like an Evelyn Waugh character, you know? People know about her, and I should have too. But yeah, she totally surprised me. So um, that was probably the biggest one for me. A couple of years ago, I read Pride and Prejudice for the first time out of a sense of obligation and was like, oh, this is a masterpiece like it's actually <laughs> like i didn't like I, I thought this was just one of those books people liked because of whatever like no this is actually re- actually like, a masterpiece <laughs> like i get now why sometimes people say this is the best book in the english language i don't know if i want to say that or not because who cares but like i get right. now why it's on the list like holy cats <laughs> i know well, i i know and i always that's why I, it's funny because i i I mean, you and I both have multiple degrees and I have, you know, multiple liberal arts degrees, but um, it's just so funny how I was such a bad student in college, especially. And actually I was a bad student in my first master's program. And so I feel like I missed a lot of opportunity to actually read as broadly as I want to, but I think I just do better with the autodidact model where I can just jump around at my own leisure, you know? Um, but I, I always feel so foolish for how many good books I didn't even know existed. And then I find them in it. And it, like, it's, I had the same experience with, um, with Virginia Woolf. Like I, I liked Mrs. Dalloway. Um, and I read to the lighthouse and I realized, Oh, she's one of the greatest writers <laughs> of the last, you know, 150 years, just like everyone has always said ever since she was alive. But I also, you know what I also read this year? Have you ever read uh, any of PG Wodehouse? I was going to ask you, because I saw on your list you'd read a bunch of Jeeves and Wooster. I have not. I've heard great things. Are they correct? <laughs> it's so, I just, yeah, I almost so, so, okay, here's my hot take on, on, on Wodehouse, which I've only, I mean, I've read enough to have an opinion on him. Um, and it's a little similar to Muriel Spark. A lot of the best comedy writers in England 
I think they have a playwright's sensibility. You know, like they just, they set up a scene and then two characters, sometimes more, kind of just have funny interactions for the direct, like that's the action of the scene. Do you know what I mean? And so definitely Wodehouse, a lot of the books are written to me, almost like early television plays or something, you know, like it is a setup. And it's all, it's, the best part is too, is that Jeeves and Wooster, right? Jeeves is the butler. Wooster is sort of this, you know, young flaneur or maybe less than that. You know, he's this young, rich gentleman of England. And what's funny is that like the basic structure of the books is a detective story. <laughs> so like <laughs> Bertie Wooster's friends always have some problem, usually involving love. Um, and they come to him to help them basically solve the case. And of course, he always uses Jeeves to solve the case in the end. So that's the basic structure. And then the books play out like um, like plays. But, okay, here's where I go off on a total right tangent. I have never seen soap operas like in my life, basically, until this summer I was at my mother-in-law's with my daughter. And she has soap operas on sometime, my mother-in-law, but I've never watched them ever. So I finally watched one, and it's literally like three revolving scenes of people talking, and that's what Wodehouse is. He's like a funny soap opera writer, which sounds like really negative, except that I don't know anyone else in the English language who's written primarily in dialogue so many books um, and been, uh, that's I don't know, that amazing. So I don't know. The books are really smart. He's a really good writer. I'm not giving him enough, enough credit for some of the narrative stuff he does, but it really is... It really is the dialogue that just astounds you. Um, and yeah, it's stupidly funny. It's like a, you know, it must be the most pro-aristocracy texts in the world. And they're just hysterical. They're just to die for. Um, I really want to see the the Hugh Laurie and um, Stephen Fry. Is that right? I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah they do it. They do like, they have the whole like, you know, TV series back in the 90s that I really want to watch. But yeah, so I don't know. So Wodehouse is both really complicated in some ways and how smart he is, but he is just, he's the funniest damn guy I've ever read, I think. I mean, he, he or, like, Ambrose Bierce or Mark Twain, like, one of those guys, the funniest writers I've read, for sure. Okay, so, Bill, since we're on the we're on the subject of books that we've read this year that surprised us, um, I would, I'd be curious if you could do this. Could you pick out a book from this year that you would call your favorite 2018 read? Um, or is that just too, too big of an ask? Well... I mean, I was thinking about that a little bit. Part of it, I, I, I read, uh, I, I have a bad tendency in both reading and in like movies and stuff to be broad and shallow rather than, you know, so I read a lot of, a lot of different genres and stuff, but I don't always knuckle down and go all the way into something the way I should. So I read a lot of really different books this year, and I'm not really sure how I would go about ranking, you know, Black Lamb and Grey Falcon versus The Haunting of Hill House versus like the biography of Grant versus... Yeah, you know, right. some of that other stuff. Well, maybe, but... maybe we could do like even like if you, if this would help you, like um, which I don't mean to cut you off, but like you could also you could do this instead of or in addition to you could do like a desert island. But if you had to take one book from this year with you to a desert island, maybe that would be also a way to judge the book that stands out most. So if I was going to grab one book, I think Black Lamb and Gray Falcon would at least have to be in the top of the consideration again as a desert island book partly also because it's huge right which i don't just mean literally <laughs> like it would give me more time to spend on my desert island but also like like i really liked the ted chang stories which i also read this year right but like that's kind of one thing right so it feels like a desert island book should be something sort of broader and more expansive and so maybe that would be it actually which i know was boring because we just did a whole podcast on it but it really is a 
a heck of a thing. <laughs> no, I so I, I mean, I think my answer might be similar. And I, I know I kind of asked you two questions at once because it is hard because, like, in some ways, my favorite book this year was Prime, Prime of Machine Brody or actually Dennis Johnson. Um, he had a posthumous collection of short stories published, which um, were, was also one of my probably, you know, like top 10 or 15 books of all time in some ways. Um, and so it'd be really easy to choose one of those as like my favorite read in some ways. But I agree with you, the Desert Island part changes the question as far as, you know, what would you want to survive with or live on or chew on mentally for however long? And it, it probably would be Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, just because, like you said, the book is so many different things at once. Um, which is why, actually, I would be, I would be tempted to choose... Um, Dennis Johnson, just because his book of short stories, he does a, he does at least a few different um, voices and styles that you know it would have some variation there. But yeah, Black Lamb and Gray Falcon, man, it I, I we read it last, and so it's probably hottest in my mind still, and yet um, I continue to think about it. <laughs> I still I'm still thinking about it when stuff comes up, um, whether it's you know political or religious or whatever else. So. Um, I think that probably was definitely the most important book I read this year. But Prime of Mischief Brody probably was like the best book I read this year. I really thought that was that was something special, which I you know wish I didn't wish I didn't wish I hadn't had to have learned at the age of thirty. You know, <laughs> would have been nice to know that beforehand. Just a quick aside on the subject of writers who are just very funny. I did go and read a bunch of Douglas Adams this year. Um, so I had I had always read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books going back since I was a kid. So I have those memorized. But I did reread the first one. But then I read uh, the two books in his Dirk Gently series, which is um, yeah, when he just really just goes off the rails and does whatever weird stuff he wants to do. The first one literally started as a Doctor Who script because he did he did a lot of writing for Doctor Who back in the seventies. Uh, <laughs> And so there's actually oh half filmed, there's, I think they filmed about half of it, or I forget how it all worked out, but they filmed some portion of the story that would become Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency before it became Dirk Gently. I so that's did not a really know weird, that. It's a really weird meta thing, because like, clearly they, they meet a professor who was clearly just a Time Lord, like with a TARDIS, like in the book, <laughs> like it's very clearly who he is. And, and the whole time I was reading it, I was like, man, I think Douglas Adams did some work for Doctor Who. I wonder if he, and I read, oh no, he wrote this as a Doctor Who script first. Um, so I read those two. It's just Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency and The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul, which incidentally is actually the book that inspired American Gods, uh, which is very clear why, because it's basically that idea, but uh, <laughs> sillier um, and not about America. So, you know, it's not obviously the same did it, book. But did this... it lessen your opinion of American Gods or? No, I, I think they're they're actually very different projects because, again, American Gods is so much about America and a road trip. It's a road trip novel with a fantasy thing bolted onto it, whereas The Long Dark Deep Time of the Soul is just more of Douglas Adams screwing around, which is really, like, both of these books, I finished them, and I'm like, I'm not even clear on what happened here. Like, the plot of these books kind of falls apart, I think, if you look at it too hard. But I have never read a writer, maybe, where... Every, like, two sentences is a joke and is a really good joke and sometimes oh, a really structurally complicated joke. Like, I'm not talking about, like, a series of one-liner puns, right? But, like, he sets up these elaborate, like, vaudeville routines in just a paragraph of narrative that doesn't make any difference. Like, it's it's all, it's, it's just worth reading as for the sentences as ends in themselves in a way that, like, you get... I, I get f done with either of those books and I'm just so happy <laughs> even as i'm like i don't know what happened in this book or i know but it was it, it was pretty whatever but like all of the scenes are just so full of this delight in language and in just humor that they're just absolutely worth reading 
And the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is like that as well, but it's it's also other stuff too, because it's a, you know. And also, I read it when I was a kid. Like, I can't. Is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy a good book? I have no idea. It's one of the foundational texts of my soul. Like, I don't have any yep. idea whether it is a good book. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, and I I actually like that you, how, you, how you summarize the humor because I, I would put that's that reminds me of Wodehouse actually is that he he strings together very like not only so it's like each paragraph has a joke. They're also every paragraph is building to a final joke, and that's the point of the scene. <laughs> yeah. Like the stakes are humor. And nothing else. Do you know what I mean? Which I think is so hard to make interesting over the course of an entire book. And yet Wodehouse did it over the course of 40 books, you know, which I find just mind boggling. But I I actually saw on the subject of, you know, you reading a a bunch more books by people we like, I think we would be remiss not to bring up the patron saint of this podcast, um, which who is Francis Spufford, of course, the Spuff, Um, as we as we often call him. Um, and uh, you became a Spufford completist this year, Bill. And I just wanted to I ask did. you how that was and if you have any kind of loose ranking of his books. <laughs> yeah, so Francis Spufford has written, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven books, uh, one of which is a collection of essays, uh, starting in about, like, 98, up until his most recent one came out, I guess, last year. Um, and I don't... Uh, the, the books are of a wide variety of different subjects. If you haven't read him, uh, his most famous books are probably Unapologetic, Red Plenty, and Golden Hill, which are, respectively, a book about being a Christian in Britain and why that's worth doing. Uh, which, <laughs> and, and why you need the F word to explain it. <laughs> yeah, and why you, you need to swear a lot. And, you, and it's uh, and I'm, I'm being a snark, but it's a wonderful book, one of the most important it books I've good. ever read. Um very important to me personally. Red Plenty, which is a sort of novel, sort of history book about the time when the Soviet planned economy looked like it was working um, and why it didn't end up working correctly, um, which is uh, it's a really complicated and really good book. And then Golden Hill, which is a a novel about his first novel. It's a pure novel about New York in about 1745, like a mysterious stranger comes to town with a bunch of money and everyone tries to figure out what he's up to. He described it as he wanted to write a serious novel that also featured a rooftop chase, um, which is, you know, why I'm in love with Francis Bufford, because that's which sort of is, what I would like to do. That's sort of... <laughs> <laughs> which is like the one of the... one of the Yeah, that's one of the great, um, I feel like, visions for what a novel should be, basically. It's, it's actually what I was saying earlier. He sums it up in one sentence of one paragraph, which is a novel should be fun and, and tell you something about what it means to be human. <laughs> And uh, I think that's very much what he did in that. So so I had read Unapologetic and Golden Hill before, but then this year, partly just because Joel and I had kept making jokes about uh, Francis Bufford, who is legitimately a fantastic writer, but has also become sort of a, a meme between us for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I went and I, I bought every one of his books. I mean, he's edited a couple, which I haven't read, uh, but I bought all of his complete books that he's written and uh, read them. And it's kind of fun to go through because you have a book, I May Be Some Time, which is about polar exploration in the English, like, self-conception in the 19th and 20th centuries. And that that's the guy, by the way, who had told us to read. I mean, he, we've never spoken to him. I want to be very clear. He does not know who we are. But, like, we read stuff he had written about the worst journey in the world, the first book we did in our podcast. Uh, and that was sort of the genesis of this whole project was we were going to read Francis Spufford on this book and this book. Um, so that book, which I think is really, really good, a book called The Child That Books Built, which is sort of a memoir of, a li- it's, it's kind of an odd book because it's both a little bit of a memoir of him growing up with this uh, 
as a reader and like particularly with a, a sister who was just very 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 ill her entire life and the way his relationship with her and his family was kind of complicated but he really doesn't delve into that very much he spends a lot of time really trying to do deep reads of a couple of books he picks out and why they were important to him and how they're important to childhood development and you get to the end of the book and you're like i'm not really sure what this added up to <laughs> like it's it's kind of a thin novel or a thin book rather and it's all pretty good minute to minute but i'm not really sure it works up to much of anything other than spufford had some ideas and wrote them down in the book so it's not certainly worth reading but i i didn't love it quite the way everyone else did i think neil gaiman said that he didn't have to write that book now because spufford had written it. it's like it's, it had some press at the time and it's oh, certainly wow. not bad but i uh i think it's a little bit of an mfa thesis that got away from him more than a book if that makes sense Oh, um, I'm very familiar with those. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he wrote a book called Backroom Boys, which is just kind of a series of loosely connected essays about cool stuff British scientists are getting up to. And uh, I actually really enjoyed it, but it is that's what it is. Like, <laughs> um, And then he had another, another collection of essays called True Stories and Other Essays, which is just a collection of essays he's written over the years, often about one or more of those topics, either sort of Christian not you he, he, the book is called unapologetic because it's not apologetics but it's closer to that than anything else um like soviet ec- economy and like um british science stuff and they're all there's some pretty good essays in there um he, he wrote some reviews of books that are i think really excellent of kim stanley robinson's mars books that are supposed yeah. to be really good that i haven't read spufford's essay on that is really dynamite um and he has a really good essay about the concept of plenty and about how we're it doesn't matter. Anyway, he's got some good essays in there. So if I was going to rank them, I'd still think the top three are Golden Hill, Red Plenty, and Unapologetic. Probably I'd say Unapologetic and then Golden Hill and then Red Plenty. But that's probably just because I really like Unapologetic. I'm not sure if it's actually a better book. And then after that, I don't know, I may be some time, and then True Stories, and then Backroom Boys and the Child the Book's Built. There, that's it. Them. That's that's the definitive ranking. It now exists. I don't think anyone else has done this. Uh, that that's our That's now our thing. We have that. TM... Yeah, TM, 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 as <laughs> the McElroys would say. Um, so yeah, and whenever, whenever he writes another book, I'll go back and I'll add to it. And uh, someday in 20 years, he'll stumble across this podcast and wonder what in the heck is going on. And that'll be great. <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll think he's made it. You know, you only, you only know you've made it when um, you're popular enough to become like an obscure joke between friends. <laughs> Do you know what that's, I mean? That's the real sign of literary success. <laughs> I feel when like two he, friends make yeah. a bunch of jokes about you on their podcast. Yes. Because they love you, though, Spuff. Let's be clear. Yeah, no, and I would reiterate, he's a fantastic writer. He's one of my absolute favorite writers. And so I don't know quite why he's a joke with us, other than that he's relatively obscure. I I think he does, actually. I mean, he is relatively obscure. And I I, I think the joke also is that, like, we actually love him so much. We it's almost like how you talk people talk about their sports teams as, as though they're on the sport team, you know? Like I mean I do this too sometimes. Like, oh Liverpool's playing Manchester United. I hope we beat them. Oh, are you are you suiting up? <laughs> I, I didn't know you were signed by Liverpool. And so I feel like we almost like like at least in our private conversations, we almost had that sort of like unearned intimacy as far as how we would talk about him. Because we both he really connected to us as far as you know our own pathways through various things personal and also intellectual um because actually he remains for me like like you you listed the books he read or he wrote sorry and um what i what i was struck by even though i even though i know this because i've read a lot of the or i've read three of four of three three and a half of those um which is that he is someone who is able to actually exhaust his um like attention span you know what i mean so like i I feel like he has all these various interests 
And yet he wrote a whole sort of nonfiction hybrid on the Soviet Union. Do you know what I mean? Like where I, like, yeah. I feel like I have a similar instinct often towards similar things that he writes about, but he's able to actually sort of harness you know, his talent and his curiosity into a really useful production, which I, I, you know, honestly, like, especially for nonfiction, I struggle with more. I feel like I bounce around a lot. And so he's a great model as a writer, but also I, like you said, I mean, I first book I read by him was unapologetic and it was sort of like someone pulled back a screen on a lot of thoughts. I didn't know I could have, but that it was maybe, I'd maybe, maybe, maybe been having for a, a long time. Um, which was, yeah, which was remarkable that he could write that book kind of, you know, I think he wrote it really fast and put it out there. I don't know what he expected, but yeah, it's been a big book um, for me and for other people. So I, 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 I want to jump from him though. So like, I have a really hard time completing anyone I love to read. So like a uh, friend of the podcast that you and I share, Christy Kleppinger, um, she's a huge Madeline Lingle fan, as am I. And um I think she still has a few books of Lingles that she hasn't read. And we've talked about it. Like once she's finished, she's finished. I mean, she'll reread them, but like there's only so many times you can, you know, read a new book by someone you love. And yet I, I feel like for the first time this next year, I think my goal is going to be, is going to be become a Dennis Johnson and a Muriel Spark completist. And I just, is, is that like a, I don't know. I was just curious if that's like, <laughs> that's a really silly <laughs> framework for like a discussion, but no, I, I can what, really how, what do you, yeah. What do you feel about that? I mean, you finished buffered, but are there people that you save? Are there books that you're saving for later? Do you feel like, um, I, I don't know. There are definitely writers where like I read one thing and thought it was fantastic. And I know that nothing else they've written has ever had that level of uh, press at least. And so I'm really nervous. Cause like, I don't want to like, I'm more, yeah. is it going to be good? Because either way, like, either there are the, like, these undiscovered gems, in which case I feel sad, or they're not very good, and I'm like, oh, so this was your one book, right? And that's also sad. There's a few writers that I'm a completionist about. Um, I think I've read everything Lovecraft ever wrote at this point. Um, right. Maybe not some of the ghost-written stuff. I'm not sure why. I, I think I've talked about this before. I don't know when I decided that Lovecraft was my guy. He's really good when he's good, but he's often really bad. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> I just, one day I was like, yep, I'm going to read all of it. Uh, right. And I'm not sure why that is, um, because like I said, that when he's really good, I mean, he's wrote some of the short stories he's written are legitimately phenomenal short stories, and people who call him a bad writer uh, just aren't paying attention to some of those stories. Well, the, stru yeah, the, wrong, the, the, yeah. the structure of the Call of Cthulhu is amazing. Like uh, St. Joshi talks about this in his biography, but the way he sets up the final appearance of the monster in the call of Cthulhu is just structurally fantastic. Cause you get descriptions of art about the monster two or three times. So, you know, you know, roughly what it looks like, but you don't when when the thing actually shows up, he doesn't describe it except with a couple of really oblique phrases. Um, and it's great. And people you know, like, a some people are like, Oh, he just ever says, I can't describe it. And he does do that sometimes with some of his lesser stories, but that's not what he's doing here. He's, he's, he's told you what it looks like three times. Cause he's described a statue and a bas relief and a couple other things. Uh, he doesn't have to describe the actual monster because your brain's already got it, and you can instead just describe how it moves, and so you get that great sentence, a mountain walked or stumbled, which is, I'm not sure, I, no. I, I, I guess I'm just going to talk about Lovecraft sometimes, so I'm going to stop now. But the other writer <laughs> that I'm doing is, uh, I did have a little wine the other night and bought every Shirley Jackson novel, so I'm going to be a Shirley Jackson completionist next year. <laughs> I, I, I honest to goodness, like, have a problem with... Um, not so much drink buying books, although I have done that, but it's like sad buying books. Like, so <laughs> yeah. I, I have this amazing, 
um, folio society edition of Chronicles of Narnia. That's like a direct result of looking, um, looking with apprehension at going home for Christmas. A couple years ago, I was at work and I got into an eBay bidding contest and spent like, I will not say how much, but too much money <laughs> on this. I'm really proud that I own them. <laughs> and I maybe talked a couple people into like, <laughs> hey, do you want to give me a Christmas present? Maybe you could just support this book that I've already bought. Um, <laughs> just give me 20 bucks I'll use to buy groceries because I already spent those 20 bucks on this book yeah <laughs> but, I, like, but like yeah uh, my wife Emily and I um, we've talked about it that like I, I, I don't like to buy things but I, I have a legitimate problem like um, with not just impulse buying but it's like sad impulse buying books <laughs> it's the weirdest most expensive bad habit I have um, <laughs> but yeah no so it's interesting what you said about like you're, you know, you kind of have this fear about the books being bad. Because I, I had a little bit of that with Madeline Lingle, actually, where I, again, she's one of my favorite authors um, in sort of like a very personal way. But of course, like everyone else, I think Wrinkle in Time is is genuinely like a really good book. Um, and I think you can qualify it and say a really good book, like literally middle, middle grade fiction that transcends middle grade fiction while still being middle grade fiction. <laughs> um but um, I read a few of her, her other books, you know, I, there were a few of them that I didn't love as much. And so I started to like, cool on her a little bit. And then actually she was one of the people who sort of saved me from academia in the sense of like I was going through a master's. I was preparing to do a PhD. I'd gotten into a couple of PhDs and like right in the middle of this ter- this process where I was like, I don't know what to do with all this book love I have. My thing is very practical the idea of going on to a PhD and becoming like a professor feels like a route that I can understand. Whereas not doing that feels like me being open to a much more fluid life that I have no model for basically. Right. Like there's no artists in the family, you know? Um, and, but I read Madeline Lingle and I read dragons in the water, which is a book I hadn't read of hers. And I, I kind of just put it off because I thought maybe it would be like, Another book about, you know, these precocious kids who are sort of like sad and interesting and smart, but like it was one of her, I don't know, and it was brilliant. And so I had a similar experience with Muriel, Muriel Spark, who I talked about earlier, where the Prime of Michigan Brody, I followed up with a book that no one talks about for her, which is The Bachelors. And The Bachelors was incredible. And um, I think I want to become a Muriel Spark completist because I've now read, I think, five of her books. And there's, you know, there's some variation in quality, but they've all been freaking dynamite. And same with Dennis Johnson, actually. And so, I don't know, I think there are just some writers out there. Like, it's, what, what's frustrating to me, though, is that, like, what you said with Lovecraft, like, books aren't sports where, like, Michael Jordan was so great at basketball partly because of his consistency, you know? Like, there were other players who could score as well or play defense as well, which I know you're loving this. And this is, like, a totally Bill analogy. You must be loving this basketball analogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but you know like there's a really, there's a weird way in which like consistency is part of greatness, and I think that's somewhat true for writers. Like Graham Greene is one of the best writers I think of the 20th century because he's so consistent. Um, Toni Morrison I feel like has that until like the 1990s. She starts to fall off a little bit then, but she writes like you know five to six dynamite books in a row, you know, and um, and yet the beautiful thing about being a writer is. Like Lovecraft, you only actually have to write one or two genuine masterpieces to be a great writer, um, and that's mostly what people are able to do if they're good at all. So I don't know. But so Muriel Spark fascinates me because like she writes these short books that so far like not one of them has been below maybe like a a genuine revelation. Um, 
So I think I might try and finish her because she also, she's really quick to read too. What else should we talk about, Bill? This is like the hardest podcast to do yet, I think in some ways, because, you know, usually we have a a book to rely on to guide us through everything. Whereas is this one, like, I, I don't want to just, you know, uh, perseverate too much on things no one else cares about. And yet, like, I do, I'm having to stop myself from just asking you, like, well, what about this book you read? Did you like that book? What about, what about this book did you read? Um, actually, for example, you and I, I think you and I both read um, King Leopold's Ghost. Yeah. Um, I thought that was an incredible book, which I know, again, was very popular when it came out at one point. But I talk about ignorant. I had no idea about anything he talked about in that book until I read it, uh, which I assume is probably true for you as well. I had heard about that book. Like I had heard people talk about that book and give kind of the back of the book copy. So I knew I knew that the Belgian the treatment of the people in the Belgian Congo was much worse than bad. people think, but right. I didn't know anything other than that. Like I knew that not only was it bad, it was like one of the worst things that's ever happened. You know what yeah, I mean? Holocaust I, but I, but level, I, but I, yeah. But I didn't know specifically other than that until I read the book. And what I knew about that, it was because people said, you should read King's Leopold's Ghost. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, and honestly, this, this this brings us back to Black Lamb and Grey Falcon because like, that's the whole point of that book, which is that there is a certain way in which history is actually so big, it just slips away from us. You know, because he, yeah. that's why, that's I loved how he introduced the book, which like, he was like a journalist in the area of like you know where all of this these travesties were happening and he didn't know about this history himself this sort of end of the uh, 19th century holocaust in the belgian congo until he saw it in a footnote right he sees it in a footnote and he says oh i've got to research this but he himself was basically an expert on the congo (laughs) right and so i love that because that to me totally just proved Rebecca West right about, um, you know, there's a mystery at the heart of even the most like concrete facts. You know, there's just this mysterious way in which being alive has a, has a slippery quality that, that history sort of, I think, um, imitates, but yeah, I did think that was a good, it was a good, it was a great book though. I thought. Well, it's a great book because it's, he's, he's really unsure of what the takeaway from it should be. Like that's what's, because a lot of the book is about, not just what happened, which eventually becomes this kind of thing, which is so horrible in its mundanity. Like, you know, like it's just, and then they went out and they worked another hundred thousand people to death. And you're like, and it worked pretty much the same way it did last year. And I don't know what to say about it. So he talks about the, the move to uh, the sort of social justice, I guess, movement, you could say to try to stop this from happening and all the people who were working really hard to challenge it and the way King Leopold would fight against it. Um, But it kind of, doesn't work like it only sort of like you get a lot of people to donate a lot of money and to sort of scream about how bad it is but it doesn't really stop until king leopold dies which he didn't you know like it's it's a really ambivalent kind of thing because it feels like they made a lot of progress and they probably did but it's not like they stopped it exactly they maybe maybe just diminished it in some ways and so it's really i think that those last few chapters because hawkshild really wants to end his book with some kind of uplifting note and it's not really one there to find there's not. Uh, again, again, there's a bit because it's not like th- those guys worked really hard and did probably make a difference, but they didn't like just decisively beat the problem. And all, all throughout, and he talks about this all the time. So much of what he has to do is talk about what the various Europeans who were there were doing, because that's what the records that that, that remain. Right. And right. so the whole time he has this terrible sense of guilt where he's like, I'm trying to talk about this horrible thing where they killed millions of of people who lived in the Congo, and I really don't 
have a lot I can say about them because yeah, it's still they were just a killed. European story. Yeah, and, no, it's true. And so he really, whenever he gets a moment where he does know, have some more records about like a rebel group fighting out in the, you know, fighting against the the colony, he tries to spend as much time with it as he can. So I think it's a very interesting book, not only for making you open your eyes and say, oh my God, this is a horrible thing, but also is like how hard it is to be a historian of these sort of imperialist projects where all the records uh, relate to the imperialists, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Well, and I also, yeah, I, I, I found the book also haunting because, and again, I, I, this is how my mind has been colonized by Rebecca West and black lamb and gray Falcon, which is that, um, I just feel like so many theses she has are proven out. One of which you mentioned was that, you know, sort of this like proto social justice movement, didn't really change things because it didn't have political power, right? And that was one of yeah. Rebecca West's big theories was that a certain block of the left, which I think she thinks she belonged to, these progressive friends she talks about, I think the word progressive even, don't want to wield power, don't know how to wield power, don't want to, you know, sully themselves by getting in the ring and getting dirty or whatever, however you want to say that. And um, And I think that's actually a little proven out by the fact that, like you said, this terrible exploitation doesn't actually end until the political power changes, right? King Leopold dies and there's a turnover of power that happens, which allows for a, you know, a change in the seawaters, which actually that was part of the saddest part of the story, which also bears out Rebecca West's ability to, because, you know, you and I talked about like how she can condense history and make it feel very, like she makes the 14th century feel very relevant to right now. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Hochschild's dealing with a much shorter timeline, but he, I don't know if he ends the book this way, if it's in the epilogue or whatever it is, I don't remember, but it's in the book where he talks about the 1960s and sort of the first democratically elected leader um, you know, of the Congo area and how that guy basically says, we're not going to only stop outright colonialism, we're going to start stop sort of this corporate colonialism, <laughs> we're going to kick the Europeans out. He makes overtures to the Soviet Union, and with an, with enough support by the CIA, he's killed, basically. And the CIA element is borne out in the fact that, Hawk, this is Hawkchild's claim, not mine, that this guy is driven around by a CIA agent for a couple hours before he's buried somewhere randomly. So, like, there was enough U.S. knowledge and support of the assassination that an agent ended up with the body. You know what I mean? Like, it was just crazy to me. And he, of course, makes this really clear argument that, like, yeah, this is the direct result of the end of the 19th, or so, yeah, the end of the 19th century's exploitation, right? Which is just, that's, I mean, that's a horrifying idea that, like, history has such a long tail, you know, that you can't escape it with a couple decades of, elections which is sort of like a real bummer like you said but also i don't know made me take made me take my own country maybe a little more seriously do you know what i mean like, like the only the, the, the ramifications of of what we're born into as opposed to what we're trying to make um but again it comes back to freaking black lamb and gray falcon yep <laughs> book is unavoidable it's become like it's become like the only hermeneutic in my mind currently i use it to interpret everything else it's crazy all right so what else do you want to talk about bill any other books that you want to talk about that like maybe stand out as far as things you learned or just that you were uh, surprised by or do you want to move on to books you didn't like i, I kind of want to move on to books i didn't like but i'm gonna let you go first 
because uh, oh, okay. I got I got I got I got I got a rant in a minute, but I want to let you do your bit first. <laughs> so I, I think one thing I like about this podcast though is I think we're generally pretty positive. Like we, I, I crapped all over the Haunting of Hill House TV show at one point and stuff, but I, I think we generally are trying to, you know, talk about books we like and not sort of get dunks here and there. But were there any books you read this year that you really, really didn't like? Um, you know, I've gotten a lot better at putting books down. Um, so I, I don't, I got on the reading list I sent you, I have a few books listed that I didn't finish. Um, one of them, which I, I did hate. I, I actually, and I, I like John le Carre, um, you know, spiking from the cold and other classics of his. Um, but I tried to read the second of the George Smiley trilogy, the honorable Schoolboy, And I hated that book. I thought I couldn't believe how, how overwritten it was. Like every single chapter was not joking five to ten times longer than it needed to be. And he just, it's like he forgot, he forgot how to write out a scene in action. Everything was retrospect or backflash of some kind. Like it was, it was just crazy, which is especially crazy because like he did so much backflash, you know, exposition work, um, throughout every single chapter. And it was surprising because actually Spy Came From the Cold is one of the best books I've read, especially in that genre, because it has like one sentence of backstory for its main character. It mentions at one point that he had a German aunt he feared. I think it's feared. And that's it. You don't get like you, you learn <laughs> other things about him, you know, like he like you know, you know, you know, he was a spy, you know, he served here or there. But like as far as his personal backstory, there's nothing. But you you know exactly who the guy is because you see him in action, you know, all these really dramatic, you know, kind of well-framed scenes. And so that, I hated that book. That book was bad. Um, there, there weren't a lot of books that I hated besides that. There were books that I struggled with. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I was trying to think of the one I struggled with most, which was maybe uh, a couple of books I had to teach, to be honest, I didn't love. And I, I probably won't mention those just because I feel like it's not fair because I had to teach them, you know, so it's not. The yeah. authors. It's not the it's not the author's fault that I, I taught them. I did. I will say. I mentioned her earlier. Jamie Quattro. I think it's Quattro. Gosh, I hope I'm not messing that up. Um, her book Fire Sermon, um, was a really powerful and interesting book about desire, lust, and transcendence. Um, but she just wrote the stupidest sex scenes. Man, they were just these like sloppy, silly affairs. And uh, I think it really diminished the book because I, I just think that she got so caught up with trying to make the the like lustful romantic desire vivid enough that you could have a spiritual conversation about it that she actually ends up doing these like weird caricatures of sex where she talks about like, you know, multiple holes being loved. And you know what I mean? It's like, okay, all right, Jamie. Like I get it. This is like an intense affair, but I don't need to read about everything they do to each other to know that they're having an intense affair. Um, but it was a good book. That was actually a good book. I mean, I recommend it. I just thought that it was a really weak point. So, okay, that's probably all I have. I mean, honestly, like there are other books that I had problems with, but nothing of the level of um, Honorable Schoolboy, to be honest. Well, that makes sense. Um, so I, I only read one book this year that I hated. I read a couple of books I didn't like as much and so on and so forth. But the only book I read where I, I, I only forced myself to keep reading it because I, I don't know, I'm a, I, I don't like putting books down. Um, so I, I've developed a relatively recent interest in like the sword and sorcery genre, right? Which is this really right. weird kind of neglected fantasy genre, um, that was big 
in like the 40s up through the 60s and has basically never been important again. Like you can kind of grab some more recent stuff and throw it into that genre if you want, but it's not a big part of fantasy. Like uh, Saladin Ahmed's Throne of the Crescent Moon is pretty clearly sword and sorcery and is also, I think, one of the best sword and sorcery things ever written. But other than that, I'm not sure what else there is that's being written right now. And granted, I'm not super hooked into it, but it's definitely not like your major fantasy books don't constitute this genre, right, that you read about now. Right. Uh, and it's uh, the canonical authors. There's three of them. It's Robert E. Howard for the Conan and, to a lesser extent, the Cull stories. It's uh, Fritz Leiber, primarily for the Fafford and the Grey Mauser stories. And it's um, Michael Moorcock for the Elric of Meldebone, or however the heck you say it, stories. And they're kind of the three canonical authors, right? Okay. Um, and I've read chunks of all three of them now, uh, but I spent a lot of time this year reading... Not a lot of time, but I spent some time this year reading Liber and Moorcock because I had read some Conan back in the day. And when it's good, it's good. And it's mostly not very good. And it's fine. Uh, and I fell madly in love with Fritz Liber's stuff. Um, but I, I was excited to read Moorcock because I had heard that that was like the really kind of grown up one that really like had some stuff to say and made a hero who was not a caricature and was more complicated. So I was really excited to read about Elric of Malnabone and it's the worst thing I've read in years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I read one collection. So these are all short stories as a rule. uh, Sword and sorcery stuff is short stories written in pulp or pulp successor magazines. Um, One reason I'm interested in it is because it all comes out of that weird fiction uh, tradition, the Lovecraft and Smith tradition. Howard was a good friend of Lovecraft's. Fritz Leiber, uh, when he was just starting out writing, would send stuff to Lovecraft to edit because Lovecraft, everyone sent stuff to Lovecraft to edit who was in that. Uh, And so it it has that, it's got that connection to that, which I think is how I first got into it. Like a lot of the Conan stuff has some really weirder sort of Lovecraftian stuff going on underneath that you're not expecting uh, because he's literally Lovecraftian. He's borrowing names and ideas from his friend Howard, uh, which is also funny because, of course, Lovecraft's first name is Howard and Howard's last (laughs) name is Howard. It doesn't matter. Anyway, so... (laughs) Michael Moorcock writes these short stories about this, like, doomed king who's an albino and has a cursed vampiric sword. And, like, look, sword and sorcery is overwrought and absurd, right? Like, that's it's having fun in a sort of theatrical, dramatic sense. And the writing is always way too many adjectives deep. And that's half the fun of it, right? Um, But Moorcock's writing, at least in the context of these nine short stories, which are collected in Elric the Stealer of Souls, are just so badly written and I just, I, I can't understand why people like Alan Moore wrote the introduction to this and talk about how much he loved these stories, and I just don't get it. Um, and I'm just going to read a short passage here to make, to sort of make my point clear, all right? And again, I understand that Sword and Sorcery is overwrought, and I like a lot of it. But here's how he introduces a villain in one thing. He says, A plague had smitten Eshmir, and the locust had stripped her of her beauty. Eshmir's a country. Both plague and locust went by the same name. Terarn Gashtek, Lord of the Mountain Hordes, Sunken-Faced Carrier of Destruction, Terarn Gashtek, Insane Bloodrawer, the Shrieking Flamebringer, and that was his other name, Flamebringer. Like, what? Like, where is the, and, and, and so this is the kind of the, the little bit I want to go on to here, is Liber is so good, because even as he's writing overwritten, like, overwrought dramatic stuff, there's a sense of humanity running through it. And there's a sense that he knows he's, like, there's a twinkle in his eye while he's being theatrical, right? Like, he knows this is too many adjectives. Does that make sense? Right. Like, yeah, and no, he throws totally. in he throws in little jokes as he's writing about it. There's a wry sense of humor throughout everything he does. Um, 
And the two characters he's writing about, Fafford and the Grey Mauser, are kind of larger-than-life characters, but they're also kind of like broken teenagers when he starts out, and he never lets you forget that throughout, that the reason they're living these weird lives is because they had pretty bad childhoods, and then at their first moment of adventure, screwed up really bad and got people they loved killed. You know what I mean? So like, there's this there's this real humanity throughout it, even as they're dealing with like ambulatory castles, smashing people to bits and stuff. But Moorcock's writing <laughs> doesn't have any of that sort of humor. He all takes it so desperately seriously. He's so wrapped up in the idea of this drug-addicted albino with the vampire sword that he's so serious. It's just the worst, like, 15-year-old grimdark fantasy stuff. And yet, Moorcock is supposed to be the real writer. Like, that's the that's the one that you'll get people to say, of the three, he's the one who's really good, you know? Right. Like I said, Alan Moore's writing his intro to this. Moorcock, to this day, has such tremendous clout. He writes the introduction to that Vandermeer weird fiction collection. Uh, oh, like, yeah. Like, he's all over the place. And maybe he's better in other books, but this is sort of the, the core Elric stuff, and it's so overwritten and bad. He does things like this. He writes a poem at one point that's supposed to be a magic spell. And look, I don't write poems in my fiction because I'm a bad poet, and I understand that I don't have to do the Tolkien thing and write bad poetry, or write poetry because it'll be bad when I do it, whereas Tolkien was writing much more complicated stuff, right? But no, don't say that to Michael Moorcock. He's going to write this <laughs> for like a major in like spell of invulnerability. It's, quote, bone and blood and flesh and sinew, spill, spell and spirit bind anew, potent potion work the life charm, keep its takers safe from harm. And that's just drivel. And so what frustrates me about this is that there is, like, Liber is such a better writer, <laughs> and people are always going to, are always putting Moorcock up as being somehow important. And again, maybe the later stories are, but this this wasn't just bad, it was offensively bad. Like Yeah, yeah. Because, like, Howard and Liber have their weak points, but there's, and Liber, you know, Liber, there's a couple of short stories he, he wrote here that are just really bad short stories that in the three books of his I read this year. But there's there's always sort of an attempt to do something cool, but like, this is just really bad. This is the trashiest trash fantasy I've ever read. And so, and it was, I was so expecting something real that it really bothered me. So that's my, uh, that's my, I really don't like Elric bit. I hope it was entertaining. No, man. I, well, so I, I, I also, I mean, I, <laughs> I love the idea that books don't come to us mostly without context. Right. Cause I, I do think that, it's really, I mean, I mean, well, and that's why Goodreads is such a huge force right now in the book of world, uh, the world of books, because it has sort of, you know, <sighs> captured that word of mouth, you know, energy and put it online, right? And so, because that's definitely for the book community, which is so small a portion of America, people who are like are avid readers, you know, it, it matters how you receive something because. You know, it's sort of this like passion group that, <laughs> like, like you and I have a podcast about books. You know what I mean? Like, like people who read books tend to be sort of a, a fanny sort of, um, you know, uh, collection. But all to say is like, so a book that I read, which actually, I mean, I I, I shouldn't talk about it after your amazing rant because it has nothing as negative as what you just said. But I read um, Carmen Maria Machado's um, Her Body and Other Parties, um, and I really liked it overall. It has. The best story in the book is basically SVU fan fiction, which is <laughs> mind-boggling <laughs> that she did something so cool with an idea that's so strange and approachable. Um, but honestly, it was frustrating to me that like a couple of stories everyone talked about being best, I, I thought were the weakest. And it, it's weird that there's always this consensus around things that I think people can't help having and yet once the consensus is established it's just so hard to roll back 
what was initially said. Do you know what I mean? Because like the consensus is usually an upfront thing that just gains momentum by being the first thing everyone agreed on. So like most people think that it's most people that I've read and the reviews talked about the husband stitch in um, this collection of short stories being the best book. And it's the first story and it is really polished. Um, but honestly, like the ending was so obvious from the beginning and it's not a book. It's not a story. I should say that has plot as its driving force, but it is like a sort of half genre story that has these weird elements. And one of the weird elements, you know, is essential to the ending and the entire story and it was just sort of like it, it, the very last paragraph made it a sort of cheap allegory. Do you know what I mean? Like where it was a really good short story until the ending. And that was true of a few of the stories, which, again, I don't want to go hard on because overall I really enjoyed the book. But what I found difficult was how I even had to like – I felt like I had to like be harder and um, harder on the endings and more defined in my criticism – because the consensus which was, was just so established coming into it. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, that I felt like I was wrong even for just not liking it. Do you know what I mean? Um, again, not the whole book, but just the first story, for, for my example at least. So I don't know. I, I do think consensus is weird, and I find it frustrating because I often think consensus, the inertia of consensus is actually just like laziness. You know, no one wants to point out that like, Moorcock writes poorly or that, you know, allegory isn't the strongest literary form or whatever. Um, but it's too late, you know, the consensus is settled. Um, oh, well. So, yeah, I wish I do. I will say this. I wish I hated more books. <laughs> I look at my list of books that I read. And I mean, I mean I've got like you, have, I've got, I've got a good, a good pre-filter, right? Like I've, I've read, I read books that other people I already sort of trust recommend, whether that's people in my life or people I read but like I, I mean, like I have one stretch where like I read, um, you know, I I read the Hollow Hills, which is part of this Merlin saga, and then I read Noam Chomsky, and then I read Meaningful Life, and then I read um, Carmen Maria Machado, and then I read Dennis Johnson, and it was like, yeah, they're all good. <laughs> like 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 they're so different. I feel like um, that's one thing I want to get better at is I'm okay being positive, but I don't want to lose sort of the sharpness of analysis just because i like a lot of stuff do you know what i mean does that make sense it does well and i also it makes me worried sometimes like because again I, I there's a few other books i didn't like as much but for a long time I, I had a stretch like that where i was like every book i've read for the last two months is really good and i was like well is it or am i just like going soft like right which is you know and who cares if i like too many things but there's a sense that like i might be losing my ability to understand what is good or bad and then i read you know, more cock. And I was like, nah, nah, I got it still. This is just a, I'm just that's true. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's, a good, that, that's actually, I, that's a good point. I had that, I had a little bit of that with, so I, I read more poetry this year um, than I, not, not, not that I usually do. I, I read more poetry um, than I was planning on, which I was happy about, but I actually, I got halfway through um, Ted Hughes's birthday letters, which Ted Hughes was famously, um, well, first famously, obviously a really good poet, but also more famously was married to Sylvia Plath. Um, oh yeah. You know, and, so he's been sort of, you know, some people he's been demonized by some crowds and lionized by others. Um, he was the poet laureate of England at one point, um, you know, and Sylvia always talks about like, you know, in some of her letters, she talks about like how brilliant Ted is, but she feels like her talent maybe, you know, is greater or what, you know, there's, there's, there's tension. And of course there was the tension of them being, in, you know, married in the middle of the century and, uh, 
they're both, you know, at the very minimum, equally good poets. She might be a little better, I think. But anyways, the point being is like, he kind of avoided some parts of the, you know, she commits suicide. And I, I don't know how much he wrote about her throughout his career. I don't think it was very much though. And so he publishes toward the end of his own career, it might even be his last book, he publishes this um, collection of poetry, which are birthday letters he writes to Sylvia Plath, basically. Um, and so it was really, what was, what was interesting is like I, 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 read, I got about halfway through, and like there's some good lines in it, and it was definitely interesting from sort of a gossipy standpoint <laughs> you know of like oh they they had this interesting you know college uh, college affair you know whatever right like it was just, you know it was sort of a nice you know memoir style read but it just honestly like i i didn't like the poetry and so it was actually a confirmation because i'd read four or five books of poetry and liked all of them that i i do have t- I do have preferences. See, this is not what I prefer. <laughs> like by being negative, I have affirmed my positivity. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I guess I should mention only just because I want to throw it out. The book that I think I was surprised by most that I should have mentioned earlier, besides Prime Machine Brody, is I finally read Any Dillard's for the time being. Um, mm-hmm. And all, all I'll say about that is that everyone should read that book. It, it was it was as good as maybe I, I had heard it was. Um, and she does an impossible job looking at, you know, <laughs> looking at how insignificant life should be and still making a case for significance. So, um, but yeah, I, I do wish I, li- I liked less stuff, um, but maybe I'm just good at pre-filtering. Who knows? I, I, I feel like I've, I've definitely built up a pretty good filter for stuff. And, and some of the stuff that I didn't like as much, which I'm not, you know, I didn't hate and I don't have anything funny to say about. But like I read um, Mohsin Hamid's Exit West and thought it was fine by and large. Right. And, and it was one of the books that I did not go through my usual filter. You know what I mean? I read it because President Obama liked it. Uh, which is, <laughs> I'm not trying to talk crap about President Obama's taste. It's too whatever, late, Bill. It's, it's, it's too late. You've, my... you've, hey, you've committed. We, we're talking about something really funny, though. So one of President Obama released his like favorite books and movies of the year from 2018. Yeah. And one of his favorite movies was Annihilation. Oh <laughs> and my I just, gosh. I don't know why that's so funny to me, but I just want to imagine watching the bear scene with President Obama. <laughs> like, what is that like? Like, that's <laughs> well, that's a uh, that's like um, this got to me through Reddit or something at one point. It's like when he said he really enjoyed True Detective, and um, one of the actresses who's in that who who goes nude for it, I think, says the president has seen my breasts on Twitter. So that was like a big thing, and I and I, I like it was an amazing tweet. Again, I, I think I saw it on Reddit actually. Because I just I was like, oh, that would be super weird, <laughs> you know. It's like if it's like if President Obama listened to the podcast and was like, oh, I know that you know Joel didn't like whatever. I don't know. It was weird. But um, okay. So since you brought it up, <laughs> as much as we've talked about Spufford, weirdly we've talked about Annihilation on like most of our podcasts. <laughs> yeah, um, I know. <laughs> well, no, but it's not my. It's not your fault. It's definitely my fault because. That's actually an example of a book that I ended up not liking, but which I refer to all the time because I sh- I feel like I should have liked it, and I almost thought it was really, really good before I decided it, I didn't like a lot of what it did. And so for me, it's like a really good test case because it's so close to what I want a book to be that it's helpful to think about, if that makes sense. Um, it does. But so I think... I, so I want to ask you two questions. The first one is... 
I don't think you liked the movie, but I liked the movie. <laughs> did you? Is that I did true? Like the movie. Okay, no, did you? I okay, I couldn't remember. Okay, um, um, I found the movie a little bit frustrating because the coolest thing about the book, not the coolest, one of my favorite thing, things, but some of my favorite things about the book, the movie just doesn't do at all. Um, and so I found it a little frustrating because, like, I still can't believe they made an adaptation of Annihilation which never has the words "Where lies the strangling fruit" in it at any point. Like, because that's such an important part of the of the whole trilogy is, is where those lines came from. Um, but I liked the movie. I think it's pretty cool. I think it does some really neat stuff. I think it's, you know, it's not perfect, but I, I mostly liked it. Well, and I, so my thing, cause my, what I, what I come back to always with annihilation is that, um, is that I don't believe him, the author, when he tries not to describe things, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, like, yeah. I don't believe that he couldn't like so, actually, I always think about the the, the passage in, in Ezekiel, where basically like, someone's like describing an angel or things they see in heaven, and it's maybe a gyroscope. You know, like, they, like it's like wheels within wheels and many yeah. eyes, right? Like it's this, it's a thing that actually once it's described, you you realize I don't know what they're saying. You know, I don't know what they're saying. They saw something that was beyond sight but they put it in words that of course i understand you know i understand what wheels are i know what eyes are um and that's my biggest problem with annihilation is that he didn't do that part there was for me at least in the first book he didn't and actually the second book was almost worse where he didn't put into words what you could put into words to thereby expose how unspeakable these things were um or how unknowable, because he's trying to deal with hyperobjects, right? Things that exist across such a vast expanse of space and time that you only interact with them um, in a local uh, scenario, but actually the local scenario is only like a moment of the greater thing, right? So he's dealing with this really big idea of epistemology, which I appreciate, which is why I liked the book's idea. Um, but I think the, the movie exposes how, hey, here's a prism that changes things and absorbs things that you didn't used to have in you until you have them in you. And it's like, yeah, uh, he could have just said that really early on. <laughs> not that he's not that it's the same thing. Anyway, sorry. No, so no, the but other I part, I mean, yeah, I, go ahead. I, I, I definitely did like the movies like big climactic scene a lot better than the analogous scene of Annihilation. Like. I, uh, right. in the book rather like the scene with the doppelganger and the dancing and all that is really fantastic and yeah, it really, it really was whereas like the like definitely the worst part of Annihilation is when she goes down into the base of the tower and meets the weird orb thing and it never gets good like I've, I finished the whole trilogy and so that was my second question <laughs> in a lot of ways it's, I think it's a really important book actually I think it's one I think it should be one book I mean he wrote them all within like a year of each other and I think Annihilation works a lot better as the first part of, like, a three-volume novel or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, it is... Yeah. Even even as it jumps around, I think it should be read a lot more like that. Because I... Uh, but it still doesn't... Like, it doesn't really conclude very well, which is a real problem with weird fiction in general. Weird fiction never knows how to end. Because it's like poetry. It's about describing a feeling and less about, like, a plot. And so whenever it tries to have a plot, the end is always like, and then we shot the monster. And it died. Uh, like, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, un- yeah like, the unkillable <laughs> old god, we, we... I mean, we did kill him though we did or it's you know or, and it. then it ate all of us and that's you know and that's why the, the, r- the rare one that ends properly like the color out of space ends so well because it ties up the story while also leaving the general sense of unease throughout you know because that's always the the problem with these things um and but i, I think there, there's a real sense in which area x becomes a really interesting sort of holy ground people are going pilgrimages towards that i really stuck with me and there are some individual moments and individual characters from that book i really like but I'm not sure it really holds together 
in total. And definitely all of the sort of big reveals, I think, fail. Not all of them. So, of them, well, I, so I, I actually, yeah. So I, I finished the second book, Authority, which, I again, it's so hard because the concept is so smart. Like, the idea of bureaucracy as a hyper object is really yeah. intelligent. You know, that, and that actually, I want it. I just, again, it was hard because, like, you have basically a spy talking about spycraft who can't imagine being controlled by spycraft. Like, he can imagine that. That's totally within his epistemological range. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I realize the book has other elements of, you know, plot that are going on to, uh, you know, why he can't remember things, yada, yada. But um, I so I started the last book, Acceptance, I think. Is Acceptance right? Yeah, I think that's yeah, right. Yeah, it's Acceptance. Um, and so I started that, and I, I actually just never finished it. And so that was the second question is, is I mean, I, should I just should I finish it at some point? You think it's worth finishing or just leave it, leave it, leave it be? I don't know. I think one of the things about just for me is I read them like right before several major life changing things happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> right yeah. As I was in the middle of a pretty deep depression, like like the week before kind of everything blew up. I read right. those books. And so I read them at a very weird time in my life. And that sort of odd sense of unmoored weightlessness. And also I read them and then went to the, I finished acceptance and then saw the movie like an hour later. So like, I th- there was a it was like a three day period when I was just in the really reach, in right? Vandermeer's world, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so like that's it's kind of the best way to read them and to like them. So I don't know. There's some stuff in acceptance that happens that is really cool. Um, and and I, it does answer things in a way that is somewhat satisfying. But there's also, I don't know. I think it's worth finishing, but I don't think it's the most important thing. Does that make sense? Like it's, yeah, yeah, it's, no, it, yeah, it would not it be does. a waste of time. But it's not like, but like, I came away from those books with a real sense that it was greater than the sum of its parts. Does that make sense? Like, like, yes, I, I could isolate an individual portion and be like, I didn't really do it for me. But then I added it up and I still was like, yeah, but I really care about area X for some reason. Like, and I, I really care about the biologist a lot. Yeah. And Ghostbird. I really cared about Ghostbird. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I'm not really sure again, because the individual moments, I'm not sure work that well, but which, so I also read Vandermeer's book born this year, which, um, is his most recent novel, uh, right. and is not is not connected to Annihilation at all. And I really didn't care for it that much. It's interesting, and I actually bought it for a friend as a Christmas present because I think that person will like it. Um, but I have read some of Vandermeer's short fiction as well, and like I I didn't really like Vandermeer that much going in. Like he's not bad, but I've never really liked him all that much. But there's something about Area X that stuck with me in a way that Bourne didn't. Um, you know, Bourne is just kind of like some weird stuff happens with this, uh, like plant thing she finds in her post-apocalyptic Chicago and it turns out to be sentient <laughs> and it's really wild um, and it's got some good moments it's got a great I'm going to spoil something there's a bit when she one of the main characters turns out to be have been harassing her for a long time and maybe has played with her memory it doesn't really matter and our main character ends up face to face with this person and the person gives her big monologue about why she's done everything and Vandermeer's next line is just it's in first person is this and then i hit her with a rock until she was dead and it's actually phenomenal oh like because like she has because <laughs> it's <laughs> and he's not shy he's not shied away from violence throughout the rest of the book like you know because it's a pretty violent you know relatively gory book some right. bad things have happened uh and it's just such a great shift because like she got this other character goes on this massive long speech and it's some of the exposition about what's going on and then i think literally it just cuts directly to and then i hit her with a rock until she was dead and it's just, that, that that line stuck in my brain because that it's is such a, such a sharp division and then like and then she never talks about her again it's just like no i i removed her from the equation sort of mechanically that's really i don't want to talk no, about I, it Here's no but <laughs> vandemir definitely is one of those guys who yeah he's frustrating he's frustrating for me like a lot of 
the best science fiction writers are, to be honest, where they clearly truck in big ideas and they have a gift for writing as far as even sometimes, you know, um, sentence to sentence, like you just pointed out a really, you know, smart style choice. Right. But there, there is something about, um, not, I don't mean to, to generalize too much, but like there's something about, um, the project that Vandermeer is a part of, which I just, I don't know. I, I don't always trust that it's, um, that it can ever be sort of, um, executed at the level of its, um, first vision you know like it's such an interesting idea he has with area x and the southern reach trilogy that it's almost like i'm not sure he maybe it's just that he doesn't have the tools to pull it off totally to be honest um but there's something that always breaks down for me about most of that sort of um not just weird fictions but even you know some of the some of the bigger sci-fi fiction of even like something as clear-cut as asimov you know you push too hard on it and it's just, it's sometimes, in, in order to avoid allegory, it almost like creates plot holes. Do you know what I mean? Like, because like a big idea, like a novel that's about ideas, that's about like hyper objects, like Vendemir stuff. He has to have a lot of kind of symbolic uh, narrative actions, you know, um, which happens especially in the second book, Authority, where the guy goes through a lot of sort of moments to just kind of emphasize the ways in which information is always out of reach, you know, and that's smart that you don't want to just allegorize, but it also leaves you in this weird space where you're not making an allegory, but your big idea also is, it's like, I don't know, it's like you can't fit it into a plot neatly enough. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm kind of rambling. I just, it, it's always, I don't know how to say it because it's, it's a certain genre problem, I feel like. Well, that I, I understand exactly what you're, it. I think I understand exactly what you're saying. So I, I've been reading a lot of that Vandermeer Weird Fiction Collection, right? Where he, he yeah. edited, and I, I got got it for you for Christmas. And I'd be very curious what you know if you think about it, if you read any of it. It's a huge project, so don't feel like you're obligated to read. The <laughs> It'll take thing. a while, yeah. <laughs> uh, I just, uh, and and it's really interesting because some of the stories that are there are clearly very important to Vandermeer's writings. Actually, the very first story in the book is a collect is a short, uh, it's a segment from a novel. It's called The Other Side. I think it's by Alfred Cuban. I'm gonna get that Cuban. I think that's who wrote it. Uh, Anyway, and it's it's very it's very Vandermeerian a hundred and something years earlier because it's like everyone in the town starts falling asleep and the vermin acts up and it's really weird. But like there's a sense in a lot of that kind of stuff where it's really just about describing a feeling where they 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 really still feel like they have to have a real plot going through it. Right. They don't care about the plot at all. Yes. Like yes, the plot is not exactly. important. And they just have weird stuff happen sort of to have happen. And there's not a sense that there's a design behind it some of the times. And so you sometimes feel disoriented, which is the idea is you're supposed to feel disoriented, but then you get to the end of it and you just feel kind of cheated, right? Like it feels yeah. like it was all sleight of hand rather than, and of course fiction is always sleight of hand, right? But there's a, there's a sense in which some, some books you feel as though, yeah, I really encountered something really big and grand and complicated that I didn't understand where sometimes it's like, boy, the writer and I together sure complicated something we didn't understand. You know what I mean? Like there's a, <laughs> there's a, <laughs> And and that happens in a lot of the weird fiction stuff, and it's why it's when weird fiction does stick the ending, it's so freaking good. Um, and actually, my my favorite short story I've read in there so far is a classic that I hadn't ever read. It's Jerome Bixby's "It's a Good Life," which is the short story that is the foundation for that uh, Twilight Zone episode where the kid who wishes stuff into the cornfield. Oh yeah, um, the short story. I mean, the, it's a famous TV episode, and it's good. The short story is perfect. <laughs> it is just huh. so good throughout. So I'll be curious to know what you think if you read that. But to connect oh, to something I, else I, I think we both read this year, uh, 
Ted Chang and how he does stuff, which is maybe not weird fiction, but is yeah. at least very odd and high concept, but always does it, at least in that short story collection, Stories of Your Life and Others, in a way that I think avoids a lot of these problems, at least for most of the stories. Like, he can, I think he deals with both very big ideas while also still telling stories that make sense throughout. No, he... Well, he, so we, I mean, honestly, this, this whole podcast could have just been a list of books that I was surprised I loved because, um, I mean, I, like, I feel like I discovered like, and, oh, that, okay, I actually did a, a list of books I was surprised I loved that I should have expected to love <laughs> because, um, like, you know, Mirror Spark is this sort of black comedy, um, you know, interest in spirituality writer um who is right up my alley if you describe her right i should have known that i would like her same with actually like a a poet who died i think it was this last year richard wilbur um um who's again famous poet but i'd never read much of him and i i you know i've read a lot of him now and he's amazing but um Ted Chang falls into this category and like a lot of people, um, I actually came to him because of the movie arrival, which I've, I've actually written about for the millions, um, was a really important movie to me for like just personal life reasons. I think it's a great movie. Like I think it's very easily <laughs> defended as an actually great movie. Um, but it meant a lot to me personally. And so I was like, Oh, I, you know, I should read, you know, I should read the story that it was based on. And I, I've heard good things about this collection of stories in general and um, it was funny because I just didn't expect to like it as much as I did. Partly because also like Ted Chiang almost comes from that Asimov tradition where like there's there's no sleight of hand, right? Like he is so interested in explaining exactly how things work and sort of how the um, world building has all these knock on uh, cause and effects, you know? Like okay, so if we're in a world where like. Um, <laughs> certain parts of 19th century science are literally true or or the cosmogony of um you know the ancient jews is literally true right there's like literally a ladder to heaven if that is the world we're in what would be the various knock-on consequences of living in a world like that like he's so interested in these very world-building concrete ideas um but he does something that is just so damn artful with every one of his stories and it caught me off guard. There's only one story I didn't like that much in the collection, maybe two. But like honestly, I, 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 it was, it was easily every story was like had some sort of surprise that was both very like, oh, that's smart, but also like, damn, that is an amazing writing choice. Um, so yeah, I, I loved that story. And actually, I thought the story that Arrival was based on was also a, a, an emotionally beautiful story. I think it's interesting how it differs from, from Arrival because it's yes. it's really not the same. I mean, it's the same concept and, you know, it's definitely based on and it's probably the right way to make it with the movie, but it really feels very different. It's a very, like the central conflict in Arrival, which I won't spoil, but like the central, like major twist that makes the movie work um, is similar in the book, but, or in the story, but has a whole different emotional impact. Like it's an, and it's, yes. but they're both, they're both very good though. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're both very beautiful in just very different ways. Well, um, and it, well, also because I mean, like, yeah, without trying to ruin the spoil, you know, the, the ruin the the basic twist of the movie, especially because it's it has I can't remember the because he talks about the path, right? The path is either like the slowest way or the high or the fastest way, which I know I'm kind of faking that, you know, like the light will go through the water either the best way or the worst way, and you don't know until it's happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there's, there's this ambivalence in the story that is not there in the movie. The movie sort of has a more straightforward 
poignancy, whereas the story is much more ambivalent. But I, I did think, I mean, I did think the heart of it was still the same question, to be honest. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think and, you're and, right. I, and I was surprised. I, I was just surprised. Like, there's also, you know, a story where basically the premise is a woman proves that one plus one does not equal two, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's like part of her mental breakdown. And it's uh, honestly like you could, you could, that story sounds so cheesy, but I thought that it was again, really well written because he shifts perspectives and timelines and does different stuff to just sort of elevate the world building um, obsession he clearly has. Um, so yeah, I love that collection. Man. I had, that was such a, a pleasure to read. Um, and you're right. Had a weird, had at least one or two kind of weird ish stories that, yeah, um, I think were very successful. So, well, we're, we we've we've gone on for a long time, Bill. Do you have anything you want to add about the books we read for uh for the podcast? So the, um, I think about these books a fair amount now because I spent more time thinking about them than anything else. But I will say the ones that have stuck with me more are the worst journey in the world. Um, Black Lamb and Grey Falcon and The Haunting of Hill House. Of the, uh, those are the ones that I'm definitely carrying forward um, forever. Like, In Defense of Flogging is really good, but of course it's just like a syllogism, as I think we said in that podcast. And so right. the, the actual text doesn't stick with me as much as that central argument, which I think will go forward. And I really enjoyed The Unconsoled and The Stand. I think there's a lot of really cool stuff in them, but uh, I, I don't know if those are going to be quite quite as present in my mind but i mean that's a you know 50 percent of books that i think are really important it feels like a pretty good ratio yeah <laughs> no that's yeah well and i so I, I agree i i it's funny you mentioned um in defense of flogging because i do feel like that's the book you know that comes up the most for me that or that i that I, even that i bring up the most um but you're right it's not the book it's more of just that that central argument of, you know, the kind of reductive ad absurdum arguments of if you would take lashings over a prison sentence, then we, we need to talk about how bad our prisons are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which is still an amazing argument. Although I did have one person in my life um, who's in the military and has sort of like a very physical background. And I think maybe at one point, not in the, you know, not, not that he saw, I didn't see it like in person, but, you know, heard about a flogging in a different country by that country's, you know, um, government. And I think I asked him the question and he's like, ugh, I don't know, man. <laughs> I, I don't know that I want the caning. And I was like, oh, maybe all of us just choose the caning because there's no violence in our lives, you know? Yeah, we don't know what that's actually like. Yeah, that's, that's very possible. <laughs> um, but so, but beyond that, I, I, we, we had, I think we have the same list of kind of books that I will pick forward. For. I'm glad I read Stephen King a second time because I had only ever read his memoir, which I actually liked a lot, which we talked about, and I had read the first book of um, the Dark Tower series, which I didn't like, and I don't care what everyone else says. It's not a good book. Um, <laughs> but I was glad I read The Stand. It was a, it was actually it was a really fun read. I, I read it while I was moving from the East Coast uh, around Boulder, Colorado, which is a lot of the book, actually, and that was cool. And it also, I think, it gave me some some currency. I mean, I work in a library and uh, Stephen King is just such a force of literature right now. You know, like he is just sort of this gravity well that everyone seems to have read something by him. Um, so it was good to kind of, feel like, I feel like I can recommend stuff by him more. I have a better idea of, you know, who might like him. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, absolutely. But honestly, I mean, the, the book that I'm, I mean, I, and we, I don't know, like uh, the haunting of Hill house I'd, I'd read before, um, so I, it didn't have as much of an impact this go around, but <sighs> Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, um, 
it's almost a surprise because I think as I was reading it, I couldn't decide how profound it was. Um, and I, and I don't want to overstate it either. Cause I, you know, um, I don't want to undercut its impact by sort of, you know, dismissing some of the problems I had with it, but it was a really surprisingly important book of my year. Um, and that was in a year like, like again, I mean, before I read black glam and gray Falcon, like I've Dennis Johnson and Muriel spark are going to be essential. I don't know, ancestors, whatever of my own, writing aesthetic as a writer so like those are two of the most important writers i've read annie dillard's for the time being totally tore me up in multiple ways um you know and i i feel like before i read black Lamb and gray falcon my whole year was about those kind of those books you know um and i what's weird is that those books will also go forward with me which were not for the podcast, of course, but like, it's just crazy to me that Black Lamb and Gray Falcon was such a big book that like, I read two or three of the most important writers I've ever read. And it's still this giant book on Yugoslavia that seems to have taken over a lot of my, <laughs> a lot of yeah. my retrospective reading. Um, so I guess good on us, you know, good on us for choosing that book, Bill. Well, it's, I mean, that was the point of the podcast, right? It was big books we otherwise might not read. And I think it's highly improbable I would have picked that book up on my own without something like this. And so this was a good, this was a good project, I guess is what I'm saying, because yeah. we both read this life-changing book. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I do, you know, it is funny. I do think that a little like, um, I think, you know, reading for pleasure is sort of underrated. Um, I do think it's funny though, because like, reading in community is so hard and also so made fun of. It's a little like I kind of got there on the beginning of the podcast, but I drifted away from it. You know, people hate these end of year reading lists because for a lot of good reasons, but there is something that is positive about like the shared experience of like, Oh, this, you know, these 20 year in reading little short articles from the millions for someone like me who has a lot of smart, cool friends, but not a lot of like reader friends. And if they are, they're not reading what I'm reading. It feels like I really enjoy these other people who are, you know, putting out sort of their best of and their thoughts of, because honestly, like one of the funnest parts about reading anything is the discussion, you know, like it's, it's these things that get inside of you I think one of the only ways to get them outside of you in a way that might have some of the more permanent change you and I were talking about is through sharing. You know, like I think Black Lamb and Gray Falcon was an amazing book, but you and I talking through it um, more than once, not just on the podcast, by the way. <laughs> um, I, feel like we, I feel like it came up in multiple conversations. <laughs> um, it really cemented, I think, some of the ways in which, you know, I wanted to rethink things. You know, that I wanted, I now have a, a kind of a quick, you know, a, a quick take on, okay, she condensed history for me. And I want to take that forward. You know, I want to take forward that vision of history, which says the 14th century, not that long ago, not that long ago, yeah. depend, depending on how you look at it. Um, so, yeah. So what about, what about, so, okay. So um, what about for next year, man? What do you, what do you want to read personally? And what, what do you hope we maybe look at um, as sort of a, a burgeoning institution of a literary world. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been really kind of unsure what we should read next for the pod. It's really funny. I think we decided all of our big reads within like a month of starting the podcast. <laughs> I know. And I know. so all of a sudden I'm looking at, we have a list of like possible books and I was looking at it and I was just like, I have no idea how to choose. I haven't had to pick one of these since like March. You know, I don't. <laughs> right. No, it's true. We did decide really early what to read. 
Um, and so I, I'm kind of unsure what we should read next for the podcast. Personally, I, I think I mentioned I'm going to read every Shirley Jackson book for sure. Uh, and then I've also, I've got just a, like a lot of stuff I inherited from my dad. I'm going to try to get through some stuff. It's some classics. It's some sort of political literature that I'm going to read sort of for cultural literacy reasons, just as, right. as our politics get weirder and weirder. It'd be good to know more about what, although the one, like I have a lot of like stuff, which is the sort of conservative writing in the eighties and nineties, which is, was important then. And of course these days that's less and less important. Those guys didn't actually end up running the yeah, they lost. party yeah. of the country. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I, it's still interesting to read, uh, and so I'll, you know, like I think I t- said, I think I have ten Thomas Sowell books. I'm not going to read all ten of them, but uh, I'll probably read one or two. <laughs> yeah. um, I do think we need to, and we can decide a lot on the podcast. I think we need to decide if we're going to do Atlas Shrugged for our podcast. I think it's at least a, a reasonable thing to consider doing. But I, I don't. We can talk about that later, uh, because I do think, and I, I think I said this. We mentioned it would be interesting to do a book that I think we're not expecting to like. I think that would be interesting to see if that results in a good podcast or if we just sort of have a 20 minute sure didn't like this book. Nope. Conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I do. Th- I mean, I think the good news, because actually I, I was pretty worried about that with the stand, um, to be honest, not and probably yeah. more than I even admitted to you, because I, I wanted to read it and I was hoping I would like it because I, you know, I've got a you and I both grew up, I think, reading a lot of different genre, not the same stuff at all, but like different genre stuff. We're both kind of genre kids, I think. And so I thought the stand maybe fell within my you know, my wheelhouse from, from one perspective, but, um, you're right. I, I mean, I talk about reading being good for pleasure, but I, I also subscribe to what I said earlier that Joseph Epstein said that essayist, which I do want to read for wisdom and, um, Atlas Shrugged sure seems to be really important for a lot of people. I, I, and I, I, there's, and there's not a chance on this, you know, on God's green earth that I would read it unless it was for the podcast. <laughs> um, cause I, well, cause I don't think you have, but I've actually, I've read the fountainhead. Um, no, I have not, I haven't read any rants. Okay. We, we, I'm not saying we have to do it, but I just, uh, no, no, no. I'm just thinking it through out loud. Cause I, I, it is a really interesting idea about, I, 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 it's, just, it's similar idea to like, I, I've wondered if I ever go back to teaching, you know, especially if I teach fiction from a writing perspective, I've wondered about throwing in a book that I know I don't like, and I'm, I'm never sure how successful that is. But um, I do think, I mean, I think that I, what, what I want to keep doing with the podcast, though, which I think we've done pretty well, is like, so there's a couple of big books, which I'm definitely going to read in my life. And I, I hope that we can read one of them next year. One of them's War and Peace, and one of them's um, Kristen Lavrun's Daughter, which they're both kind of these, you know, bigger, they're not epics in the Homeric sense, although War and Peace might be, but, you know, they're really big books about life, you know? Um, but they seem like if we did both in one year, for a podcast at least, that just seems redundant, you know? So I want to I want to find, <laughs> <laughs> like, I want to find, like, um, whether it's Shrugged or, like, you have, I think, Dahlgren on the list. Um yeah. You know, stuff like that, like, you know, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, like books that are just are are still just outside of the classics, basically. I tell you what, I'm not sure I I'm not sure I I I think I put I think I put it on the list. But I I don't know that I ever want to read Infinite Jest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I like I I have nothing like I mean, I've I have some of the usual stuff against David. um, Oh, my gosh, I just lost his name. Uh, David Foster, Foster Wallace. Wallace. Yeah. yeah. I have some of the usual complaints against him that everyone has. I think his nonfiction is pretty good. I think some of his short fiction is really good. Um, but I just, it's it's a little like uh, someone describing Knozgaard's current six volume memoir, essentially. Every time someone describes a project of infinite jest to me, like the footnotes and everything else, it's just like, oh, God. It just, 
I just don't, I, like, if the description is this onerous, like, what will the book be like? <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I, we have actually one book I would love to read, period. I mean, I, I always uh, love reading more um, more Dickens. We have Dombey and some on the list, which would be a real hoot to try and read Dickens. <laughs> I'd be willing to do that. I haven't read a lot of Dickens in a long time, so I'd, I'd be willing to do that. But anyone who listens, by the way, to this podcast, which, again, God bless you for making it through the whole podcast if you have. <laughs> um, but, yeah, send us some – I mean, we, I know we have some suggestions on our list, but I, I really – you know, we only have so many – so much time and resources to find new books that are of the right size. So definitely keep talking to us. But um, uh, I guess – oh, yeah. I guess personally what I'm, I'm hoping to read a little bit uh, – you and I, we talked about it actually on this podcast. We're both sort of into virtue ethics. I actually want to – I want to do a more extensive study of that. Like I want to go back and – I've read – Nicomachean Ethics back in college and a little bit after that. But I want to reread that. I want to read After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre. Um, there's a big book by Hollinghurst. I can't remember her first name that I'd like to read as well. In addition to like, I kind of love that like most of the best virtue eth- ethicists, it was like Philippa Foote and, you know, Anscombe. It was all these like really smart women off, you know, Philippa Foote wasn't, but like half of them were Catholics. I don't know. It's just, a, it's a really interesting legacy um, because there's like two branching virtue ethics, right? One that sort of comes more directly from Aristotle. And I think Anscombe has a parallel one that she differentiates a little bit. I don't know. I will, I, I like to get more of that in my life, I guess. And also Nikolai Gogol. I want to read a lot more Nikolai Gogol. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to try to be pretty broad, but I, I think those are my, I think those are the biggest projects I have is the ones I said earlier. I may actually try to read the idiot. I don't know why I haven't. I like Dostoevsky. Mm, I just, I, I do too. I, Every time I pick it up, I'm like, eh, like, like a page in, and I'm like, this is good, not feeling it, and I put it back on the shelf. And I don't know what, what that is, because it's not even that long. Like, it's only like 400 pages long. But Well, yeah. I, I, no, I, mean, I think Anna Karenina, if, if you still put a, I mean, I'm not very original, but if you put a gun to my head and said, what's the, what's the perfect novel, I'd say Anna Karenina. But a little, like, a little like we talked about earlier, I've read other Tolstoy stuff, like kind of a lot. And I, it's, like I've, it's like I've held off on War and Peace out of both anticipation and apprehension. Like, I think it will be great, but I do have some worries that it won't be as great and that'll be disappointment. But, um, I think I'll, I'll probably try and read that either with you or, or, or I don't know. I, I would be terrible not to do it as a podcast, to be honest, mostly because again, this podcast is an excuse just to talk to you about books. Um, all right. So unless you have something else as, as a tag on anything, any other favorite things you want to throw out there from 2018, anything else you love for this year that you want to just broadcast to the, to the world. I've got just two quick things I want to say. The first, one of the books I read is uh, a book by Asfa Wilson Asarate called King of Kings, the triumph and tragedy of oh, House yeah. Alassie, the first of Ethiopia. And there's, there's too much there to talk about. Um, but I just want to point out if nobody makes like a five season HBO prestige bajillion dollar TV show about early 20th century Ethiopia. They are missing the ball because it's a <laughs> phenomenal, like it's a, it's, it's a such an incredibly rich time in history with so much cool stuff going on there. And it would be, I don't know. I'm just saying somebody needs to make that because, uh, Selassie is such a fascinating guy. Um, series of contradictions between being just probably just a pretty decent guy who's also basically a despot um and the way he tries to shepherd his country through the wars and it's just it's a fascinating time a heck of a book uh the author Aswawas Nasarate is Haile Selassie's uh, grand nephew um and so he's actually towards the end of the book he'll he'll talk about something that's happening and then say and I was you know nearby when I was 9 like that's here's a picture crazy. of me with the emperor yeah. uh and it's just it's just a fascinating 
a fascinating time in history. And just you were talking about how history is like, uh, like sort of the Rebecca West. Like, there's just so much history out there. Like, that was the other book I read this year that was a whole bunch about an incredibly rich history that I didn't know anything about before. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, um, and it's just the way that Selassie navigated both sort of his attempts to sort of get sort of some Pan-African leagues going, the way he navigated European politics, because he met everybody, you know, he came to the U.S. a bunch of times, and the sort of dual space between him being kind of a celebrity, and, you know, there's a whole religion about him that exists. Like, that's the thing, it's so wild. And you finish the book, and you realize he doesn't talk about it very much, because Selassie didn't really, it wasn't a big part of his life. (laughs) It was just a whole bunch of people in the Western Hemisphere decided he was the Messiah. Uh, And, like, what a complicated guy and a complicated life. So, first of all, that's cool. The only other point I want to make, and this is a graphic novel, but there was a new Delilah Dirk book this year. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> I well sorry, I just, I just so you you're you're a very big Delilah Dirk fan, and uh, you've told me about it for like, you know, however long it's been out, basically. And I finally read them this year. And actually I haven't finished The Pillars of Hercules, because um, it's just been that busy of a, of a December. But I gotta say, like, you did not oversell Delilah Dirk. They, mostly because you <laughs> sold it as like being a fun, fun thing. But honestly, like, for the first time in my life, not the first time, but one of the first times in the last few years, I really tried to read it slowly. Because I have a habit when I, when I read graphic novels that I sometimes go too fast, you know? Because I'm so yeah. used to, like, reading text and flipping the page that I'm not always as good at, like, oh, yeah, the text is also what is drawn, right? Like, that what is, like, how something's drawn is trying to tell you a lot, if it's a good book at least. And so I, I really just forced myself to go slowly through um, the first two books especially. And I like I thought it was genuinely sort of a, a brilliant, you know, little beautiful adventure romp that was like way better illustrated than it had any right to be. Because <laughs> there are some yeah. panels that I just were, you know, they were flabbergasting to be honest. Um, and it was great. It was really, really good. Yeah. So I just wanted to say, you know, Read Delilah Dirk if you don't already read Delilah Dirk. And if you do already read Delilah Dirk, read it again. It's just very good. So that's <laughs> yeah. that's me. And buy all of his books. Like, I'm trying to... I, I got art on my walls, and, like, half of it is Delilah Dirk stuff. And that's partly a bit of a joke, right? Sort of like our, our Spufford stuff. Like, I, I really love the Delilah Dirk books. Are they, are they as good as I'm saying, or is it just kind of a stunt to sort of, you know get more attention on something which is a relatively small thing the answer of course is it is as good as i'm saying and it's not as good, but, you know. <laughs> no it really might be though i mean it really is really good um well it's but i love stuff like that so I, i've been reading so i've read a lot of Wodehouse this year and, and every year i probably will because he's sort of a relief for me like he's someone who's so good at writing but so fun that it's it's a way to like get the best out of like almost a TV experience only you're still kind of engaging a, a you know, maybe a more complicated narrative or whatever. Uh, not narrative, but like, uh, you know, more complicated form than a lot of TV actually offers. But, um, I also, I mean, this year, like I read a lot of Ross McDonald, who's famous for his Lou Archer novels, which are just, it's just straight up like, you know, sort of a Dashiell Hammett type detective series, but they're so good. They're just, they're legitimately so excellent. And um, what's fun about, I think, maybe this podcast, but also like recording the books I read and trying to get more into it is that um, I take greater pleasure in like my genre books than I used to. It's not just that I'm like, you know, I'm not just like, oh, I, I loved this book on leisure, the basis of culture. Like, yeah, I did love that book. But I feel like there's a weird way in which carving out time for reading has allowed like a love of what I used to love about reading, which is just the fun of literature to also reenter my life. Um, part of that's also probably about finishing grad school. But um, 
yeah, there's just there's just so much good out there, you know. Like that's why I love rereading stuff, but sometimes it is hard because like I've you know I want to get to the next thing sometimes, you know. But okay, so any anything else? Any other favorite things that are not books that you want to throw out real quick, or should we just end it? I mean, I feel I could talk for a thousand years if we started talking about other media too. <laughs> probably a two hour. Uh, the new smash brothers is as good as it should be uh, well you and i had a had a had a really great in-person reunion where we hung out for the first time in person in a while um not to ruin the magic of the podcast or whatever that we're in in different parts of the country as we do this (laughs) but um (laughs) but we so yeah you actually you were in denver for a few days and we finished the night it was like this glorious callback to us being in high school where we just played video games in your mom's house and it was like it was, it was actually, it was honestly the one of the great moments of the last year, <laughs> the whole night. But also just like I haven't played Smash Brothers in like three or four years, and to reacquaint myself with the person who used to torture me in high school playing Smash Brothers <laughs> was so great. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't think I have anything else either. I think I'm I'm tapped out, and I I yeah I don't watch movies anymore because I have a child, so. <laughs> I guess the only other movie thing I uh, Into the Spider Verse really is very good. I don't Dang think it's it, is it really good? Are... Man, I still haven't seen it. Uh, I, some people I think are saying it's the absolute best thing ever, and I think that's a bit of an overstating it. Uh, but it is very good, and it, it, the animation is really, really cool in it. Uh, but that's that's you know like the least controversial opinion of all time. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bad Times the El Royale is not very good actually, which is really disappointing. That is a um, bummer. That is a bummer. I don't know. I think that's th- those are all of my clever hot takes on movies from the last few months. <laughs> yeah. I don't even think I have any at this point. I would say that the only hot take I have on media is not a hot take. Cause there was a documentary this year that kind of did a beautiful, um, hagiography of Mr. Rogers or Fred Rogers. And, um, that's like the only TV show that I, I like watch with my daughter once a week. We watch like half an hour of Mr. Rogers and it's pretty annoying how good it is. Um, like I really like, <laughs> like I really wish I kind of didn't like it because it's so treacly and sugary. But um, he's amazing. He understood kids, and he created just so many different ways to, I think, engage the very young in a, a meaningful but not overhyped context. Like I even watched. We watched some of Daniel Tiger again. I have a child, and. Um, Daniel Tiger's, you know, the spinoffs essentially of Mr. Rogers. And there's just something that's always like a little too uh, clean about the animation. Whereas Mr. Rogers, it has like goofy looking puppets and it has like sassy puppets and it has petty puppets. And there's nothing with that range and almost anything else on TV that is still so slow and considered. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, Mr. Rogers is a saint and people should watch him. <laughs> which everyone already thinks. So, so, um, so here's a funny idea I've had for a minute about Fred Rogers. You ready for this? So yeah. Some, some people say that they find Fred Rogers actually kind of odd and sort of off-putting when they watch him, particularly, yeah. I mean, kids appear to mostly love him, but because he is, he is kind of, he has a weird pattern when he talks. Like He does. Kind of yeah, totally. And he does it when he's talking, like if you watch his testimony in front of the, in Congress and whatever, he does it there. Like he's, he's kind it's of just who he guy. is. I know. And there's, uh, do you remember in, the ones in future King when they meet Galahad who is without sin and everyone doesn't have any idea how to talk to him. Cause he's way too weird. Oh my gosh. Yes. 
<laughs> so I'm not literally arguing that no. Rodgers was without sin, but I just like there's something about like the most perfectly good person maybe that uh, you know a public figure of our lives because there's really like you you dig real hard you can find some stuff where like maybe he was a little bit too mean to one of his cast members who wanted to come out as gay kind of right maybe. you know what I mean like like but that's it <laughs> that's like, no you're you're totally right because actually I had this thought where um, the intensity with which he looks at things and treats people and treats kids especially like. You could really make an easy argument that, like, um, anyone else doing this would be either creepy or an oddball or whatever, right? And the creepy part especially because I feel like there's not an ounce of him that isn't being sincere with everything he does is what it feels like, you know? Like, you see him go talk to the zookeeper and he talks to her with what appears to be genuine curiosity. <laughs> you know what I mean? And what's funny is that like, he's actually not very emotional and he doesn't have a lot of like range in his face. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which means he can't fake it. Like he's not a good actor. You know, he's not good at like working people. He sort of just is this like human wall of sincerity. You know what I mean? Like, which I think it speaks to what you're saying with uh, the Galahad reference, which is just mwah, perfect. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So that's, yeah. So I guess we've recommended, a lot of books that include violence and also Mr. Rogers. Um, yeah, I think that's that's sort of the Bill and Joel experience. I think that that's sounds, about right. <laughs> that sounds about right. That sounds about right. So um, thank you to anyone who has listened to this. Like, this is just the weirdest thing that I do in my life. And I love it because um, honestly, like, I really do like reading books. And I, I maybe as middle class as it sounds, like, I think I need an outlet. Um, and, and, you know, Bill, you've been that outlet. And I just want to, I don't know, say how much I appreciate you you reading some of this text that I, I definitely would not have read if I didn't have you as sort of like a, <laughs> a sort of, if I didn't have you as like, I don't know if you like where you were accountability or if you were like the shame of punishment, like not that you would put like my, my own shame would punish me if I didn't finish <laughs> and you did. But, um, it's really been a fun project and it's definitely, I think had the, 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 the very exact fruit that I wanted as far as like, I've read books. I'm not sure I would have read otherwise. Um, so yeah, thanks for that, man. Yeah, no, and I wanted to say thanks as well. I've uh, I've really been enjoying this project, and it's been uh, it's been wonder- wonderful to talk to you about all these books and stuff. And like I've said, I've had kind of a weird year, and so having uh, this sort of little bit of structure and something to look forward to all the time, and uh, you know, just a I've always liked projects, and this is just yep. this is a good project. You know what I mean? Like I, uh, it's been very good for me this year, and I've enjoyed the heck out of it. So yeah, th- same, thank man. you as well. Yeah, same. So and yeah, and again, thanks to anyone who's listening. Um, I hope that you can. I don't know. I hope that hope that you also enjoy the podcast for what it is, which is just mostly us trying to get our enthusiasm out in the world so that other people can share with us if they want to. But um, if you do enjoy the podcast, maybe let us know on Twitter or wherever, especially if you have recommendations for more books to read. Um, you know, Bill and I are busy people, but I'd love to do some more small reads here or there as time allows as well. Um, but definitely shoot us up with some, or hit us up, shoot us up with uh, book <laughs> recommendations, <laughs> not drugs. Oh my God. Yeah, and heroin. I could also <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, it's been a rough year. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, hit us up with whatever recommendations you have, um, mostly on the, the actual big read cast Twitter or Bill. I'm, I'm terrible on Twitter. I never am on Twitter anymore. So um, yeah, yeah anything, I, I checked both the, yeah, Bill's the in charge. Cast and my own, so. <laughs> You can get a hold of me there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, anything else to add, Bill? Anything you want to add for the new year? No, I think that's pretty much it. Just, uh, you know, I hope everybody had a good 2018 and I hope everyone has a better 2019. And uh, 
like Joel says, let us know if you have any ideas for books we should read or just to tell us about how wrong we were about something. That's, that's, <laughs> that would that's be great. always good. <laughs> All right, man. Well, it was good talking to you as always. Yeah, good to talk to you too. All right, talk Bye. to you later. Bye. Final thanks to Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their song Water Song for our podcast. You can find both of them on SoundCloud if you'd like to hear more of their music. Please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or any other podcasting service. And, uh, you know, we'll see you next time.